Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening from. Thank you for joining me on Talking Fanfic for episode 306. This is going to be a fun episode, you guys. So as you know, my Oasis ramblings, they keep overlapping with this other band called U2. You might know of them. And this episode is all about U2, all things U2. My guest for the episode is Tori from the Retro Fanfic Retrospective. I've mentioned RFR a few times on the podcast. We will talk about it. Tori will talk about it. But it is one that you should subscribe to and give it a try because Retro was one of the first fanfiction podcasts out there on the scene. It's a great crew that Amato runs. Um, and Tori is one of the regulars on that podcast. And everybody's great. So Amato kind of directs the flow of the conversation. Um, Della is their engineer and she does, so she does all the hard work behind the microphone, but she also um, will come in and discuss the fanfic that they're discussing and the, and the crew does it in sort of a book club format. And sorry, Tori will explain all this. But anyway, the reason I wanted to have Tori on was a couple of different reasons. Right away, I could tell that Tori is one of those people that kind of has that English major heart. And they're not only a great listener, but Tori is always the one that kind of slows the conversation down. And I mean, this is what I enjoy doing. It's like taking what they do is they take an idea and they're able to kind of turn the stone over, look at it from all angles and sort of tease and tug the threads out of what is at the heart of that question or this theme or what's going on in this fic. Um, so Tori is always somebody I get excited about when I see that they are on the panel for um, that particular episode of RFR. The second big reason I wanted to have Tori on is because they're a huge YouTube fan. And when I heard that, I knew the podcast direction was kind of going towards YouTube fandom. Um, and I wanted to dip my toe into that. So it kind of came up during a conversation we had. And it was so great because Tori is not only just a fan, they're a huge fan, extremely knowledgeable about the band's history, about the type of music. So anyway, you're going to love it. Tori's great. We talk about the band, their history, where they came from, the music they make. We talk about all things Bono and just the insane kind of wonderful, crazy contradiction of a personality that he is and what he brings to you too. I feel like I played devil's advocate a little bit and kind of bring up some reasons that why Bono kind of drives some people crazy. But worry not, I adore Bono. We talk about all the reasons that he is wonderful. We do talk about the fan fiction and the fandom, the YouTube fan fiction fandom. We don't unfortunately give the fanfic the full retro fanfic treatment where we like dig in and pull out themes and stuff but we do talk about a fic by an author if you're in the youtube fandom you know her like a madonna uh the story we talk about is fictitious characters so you guys will enjoy that discussion of course throughout this whole episode i'm always kind of comparing and contrasting you two with oasis so we talk about kind of the irishness of U2 and the Anglo-Irishness of Oasis. We talk about both bands' relationship with religion and um, kind of generally talk about the music and then just how one band was able to find a rhythm and a dynamic together and how they were able to stay a band and communicate and compromise and all that good stuff and how they're still making music today and how the other band... Uh, failed to do that and imploded and is no longer a band. 
so I found all that stuff just fascinating. Yeah, I think that's mostly it. Gosh, anything else? Oh, I did get for the for the little handful of you wonderful listeners who also read my Oasis fic and are reading the the Ben and Gone series right now. Thank you. Uh, I never get asked. I almost never get asked on either of my tumblers, which is where you submit a question that I can then repost and respond to. But recently, in the past few months, I did get a couple asks um, on the Talk and Fanfic Tumblr um, that were related to the series I'm writing, um, which was wonderful. If there's any more people out there thinking about submitting an ask, go ahead and just do that on the Story Shark 2005 Tumblr account. Um, yeah, Story Shark 2005. It's pretty easy to find. I just like to keep my writing side kind of over there and anything with a podcast over on the Talkin' Fanfic Tumblr. So anyway, do so and I will um, I will be sure to answer that unless it's some sort of crazy hate message, <laughs> which it will be duly ignored. I don't, um, yeah, I don't respond to, to the haters. So anyway, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoy the episode. And um, enjoy. Okay, here we go. This is a very exciting day at, I was about to say retro fanfic retrospective, <laughs> actually. Uh, but yes, we are on talking fanfic. But my guest today is Tori from the retro fanfic retrospective. I think I've mentioned RFR on the podcast a few times. But if you guys aren't listening, you should check them out. And I'll let Tori talk about that as well today. But um, welcome, Tori. Hi. Yes. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I'm very excited. <laughs> well, we're. I think today we have plenty of time to talk about one of your favorite topics. Um, yeah, this season at Talking Fanfic, obviously, if people have been listening, they know I've been into Oasis and Banfic and RPF. And even before I spoke with Tori, it seemed like the last couple interviews with GB and with Shines, they are both also U2 fans. And we kept sort of kept talking about you two incidentally. And and then I had a conversation with Tori a few times. We do these little kind of happy hours with the other fanfic podcasts once in a while, which is fun. And it turns out Tori's a huge U2 fan. And um, yeah, you guys had me on your show a couple of times and it just seemed like a great excuse to like finally have a guest. Like I do the author thing, but I haven't had a collaborative episode besides with a couple things with Beth. So anyway, I'm stoked. Yeah, this is actually also my first time being on someone else's podcast because, like, we have a lot of guests, but, like, I we never guest on other people's stuff. I don't know why. Are we just rude that way? But um, I'm really excited to do this. Well, I'm glad because I always feel excited to be a guest. I mean, I've only been on – I've been on Beth's, I think, once, and then you guys twice. And I find it it's super nice because – you kind of just get to show up and like talk about something you enjoy. So I felt bad for not having like doing the work to prepare to have a guest. So anyway, I'm also excited. I feel like it's long overdue. So 
Um, yeah. Do you want to just real quick, just um, kind of give us a, a, a uh, for the people who don't know RFR, just talk about a little bit about what you guys do. Sure. Yeah. So Retro Fanfic Retrospective or RFR is a fan fiction book club. So me and Amato and usually sometimes a guest, usually we have three people and sometimes our engineer Della comes on. So we sit around and we, we read fan fiction on our own time and then we review it and talk about it and talk about what we liked. And it's all old fan fiction. It's, I think Amato's cutoff date has progressively moved from like 2006 to 2009 or something. We've been doing this for four years now. So um, almost five years. Oh my God. It's going to be it's five crazy. years in August. I can't believe that. Yeah. And um, you can find us on like, we're a retro fanfic retrospective uh, at gmail.com is our email, but you can find our, if you want to contact us, but you can find our podcast on like, Podbean or Apple Podcasts, or like basically wherever you can find your traditional podcast. So, yeah, I know when I was starting with mine, um, I just kind of had this vague idea. I wanted to talk about fanfic, and I was like, I wonder how many other people are doing it. And so I just went on Apple Podcasts because I have an iPhone and searched fanfic, I think, or fan fiction, and there wasn't much that came up. And that, that I started mine, I think, about a year or two after you guys started yours. So it was, I think, it was like pandemic time. Um, yeah. And I was surprised at how little showed up and then what did show up. A lot of it was like reading bad fan fiction and drinking wine and right. laughing about it, which, you know, sort of has its place, but that wasn't what I was interested in. But I remember you guys were the first one I found that was like having, uh, you know, not, not like serious is not fun, but like, you know, you were taking the fan fiction seriously as people who, who genuinely loved fan fiction. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and you guys are such a fun crew. Uh, so yeah, you guys do great work. Oh, uh, thanks. Yeah, I, Amato is the one who usually finds the fic for us, and he always says he likes to find something that he has a reason to believe will be good. So because we do every fandom under the sun, uh, this doesn't always work out because it is hard to find fix, and you know his job is hard. But mostly, I think we read good stuff, and that's why we have you know, good conversations about it. Yeah. There's definitely been a couple of times where we've totally panned something, but I think every time we're all sitting there going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, and it's, um, yeah, the, I love the angle too of like the older retro fanfic. And it's, I think it's almost doubly important because uh, I know that Fanfic Maverick, Beth and I have talked about on our fanfiction history that a lot of those old archive sites are disappearing. And if they don't get ported mm -hmm. over to places like AO3, then they disappear. So it's it's cool that you guys are finding that stuff that's almost like a little bit endangered um, and pulling it out to the bright light of 2023, as Otto <laughs> says. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's actually a really interesting way to look at it. Like I never even thought about it quite that much. In fact, I should think about it that way because when I was going to find the old U2 fan fiction site that I used to love when I was in middle school, probably maybe high school, um, yeah, not around anymore. Um, yeah, it's been like you can't even find it on um, like the archiving sites, or at least as far as I could figure out. And yeah, that's sad, you know, because like it brought me so much joy twenty years ago. Do you remember what that archive was called? So, like, I'm pretty sure that the website was just like it was 
it was something, this might be part of my problem is I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was something like the YouTube fan fiction site or something. It was like very yeah. simple because back then you could literally have that domain name. But I, I looked around, you know, just kind of poking around trying to find something that at least was like it. And I was like, no, no, no. So. Yeah. You know, GB might've mentioned that actually when I talked to her. So I might even have a link in my show notes. Anyway, I'm sure we can we can figure that out. But but yeah, you too. So we're talking. Oh, I forgot. I put my my cycling glasses on today, which are like, oh, they're tangled in my hair. My These are kind of like my yes. Bono glasses. <laughs> they totally are. <laughs> they're like uh, these frameless uh, kind of semi-clear cycling like, glasses. Yeah, like wrap around. They're like a, a red tint. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So I was like, I made sure to grab these. I was like, oh, Tori will love my Bono glasses. I do. I need some like that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they're pretty obnoxious. Um, I feel like you have to either be wearing a cycling helmet to make them work or you have to be like a rock star because Bono pulls them off, of course. Yeah, he pulls off anything. But um, <laughs> if I were to go out walking around like this. <laughs> I don't know. You should do. You should just do it and see what happens. Just be confident. That's the thing. I feel like with all these like rock and roll styles, like Liam wears some outrageous things mm -hmm. and it's just all about the confidence and the swagger to pull it off. It's true. And I mean, there is a, an element of the, being a celebrity. Like if you're a celebrity, the first thing people are going to notice is that you're a celebrity, not what you're wearing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, these uh, I pulled these out. So now we can talk about you two and Bono. And I also actually, this is kind of crazy. I mean, I don't know how crazy, but um, I so like my experience. I can't take. I can see myself in the camera, and I was like, I can't take myself <laughs> seriously with taking the glasses off. Um, so just very briefly, my experience with you two. Um, I just grew up listening to me on the radio. I wasn't particularly a fan. My my parents weren't particular fans, but um, so I was born in '90. So like when I was you know a teenager, they were doing their kind of later albums like. Oh gosh, I wrote all these albums. But like I remember yeah. in particular like when the iPod was coming out, that song Vertigo, it seemed like it was on mm -hmm. every commercial and the, the sort of the Bono was oh. like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like I remember I was like, God damn it, that commercial's out all the time. Um, and then I remember like the AIDS crisis thing. Anyway, I was just going to show you. I, I remember I bought this red leather bracelet. Uh, I couldn't remember where, but I, I remembered it was something to do with Bono. I was like, oh, yeah, isn't that something with Bono? So Bono did that one camp, or he has an organization called One. And I remember mm -hmm. they were doing something about AIDS in Africa and raising money for it. And and I remember he was on Oprah. And so he was doing all of this to sort of raise awareness and um, find a way that people could buy products and raise money for AIDS in Africa so it was called this, I think the red campaign. I remember these, they had these shirts that said like inspired and stuff like that on them. But anyway, I dug this out. I was like, oh yeah, that was a, oh my gosh. a bracelet. I'm so jealous because I went to one of their shows when they, when How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb came out. So like, I want to say it was like 2005 when they did the, I think they called it the Vertigo Tour. And when I was there, I bought this wristband that was just white and said one on it. And it was going to support the same foundation. But one day I lost it in the snow. Oh. And it hardly ever snows here in Portland. Like it almost never snows. And I lost it in the middle of a field filled with snow. And I never found it again. No. I know. Tragedy. I did a little search. I, I think there you can kind of find these on eBay or stuff like that once in a while. But um, but yeah, let's get into the sort of U2 thing. Um, 
I feel like I'll just start off with kind of your early history with them. Um, can you just tell me about maybe even before you two, like your experience listening to music growing up and then how you discovered you two from there? Oh, yeah. So my dad was a musician. Like he never really played in bands. I, he wasn't very sociable, but he played guitar and he played it very well. And he was really into music. And he was born in 1950. So like he was all the classic rock coming up. And we would listen to like the Moody Blues and the Beatles all the time growing up. And he had all these CDs. And I got really, really into classic rock, as it was called when I was in middle school. Probably classic rock is like 90s music now. But right. <laughs> right. And like when I was in middle school, that was like 2000, uh, the year 2000 through 2003. So that's like around sometime in there, I was listening to all this classic rock from my dad's collection. I'd been doing that since I was young, just borrowing his CDs and walking around with my disc van at school because I'm old and we used to have yes. to put music on CDs. Yeah, believe it or not. And then All That You Can't Leave Behind, U2's album came out. I guess that did come out in 2000. So I heard that on the radio. And I was just like, whoa, this is incredible. And I, my dad did own the Joshua Tree. So I, can't, I don't know if I maybe also listened to that growing up too. But like, as soon as I got into U2, he was really excited to be like, hey, here's another album of theirs. And that was it for me. After that, I, had, I owned All That You Can't Leave Behind. And my dad had Joshua Tree. And it made it my, I made it my mission to go out and find every album they've ever made. And they had ever made at the time, which wasn't that many. But it was actually really hard to find October, their second album. Yeah. And I remember I was in Bend, Oregon, just like randomly, like we were visiting friends or vacationing. And I was like, we need to go into that CD store. We have to, because I was like, I would go into every CD store. I mean, it wasn't just for U2 albums, but I found it there. And I remember it just being like one of the most exciting experiences of my life. Like, finally, the collection (laughs) is complete. Ah, like a heavenly chorus. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I was pretty obsessed with them. It was also really hard to find their merchandise around that time too. I remember I had two U2 t-shirts that I bought when we went to Vancouver, British Columbia. Because I was like, whoa, U2 t-shirts. But they were all size large and I'm five foot two and 120 pounds. But I was like, (laughs) no, I need this t-shirt. Oh man, that's awesome. That's cool that you um, got that kind of musical mantle from your dad and was able to pass that stuff down. And I- I think that's so cool about CDs, like that it's f- something physical that you can pick up as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, what's this? And so I recently got my six-year-old niece a little boombox for her birthday. And I'm kind of hoping that like she gets it. She's a big Swifty and she loves that. But I'm like, mm. you know, something like substantial is cool to be able to put your hands on. But yeah, I think that's really important. Like, I don't know, maybe that's just because I grew up without MP3s for the most. I mean, we had them by the time I was in high school, but I just, even now I went back and now I'm starting a record collection. So now I'm trying to collect all the YouTube albums in vinyl. Yeah. So I'm like going back to my childhood and, and reliving that experience. And it's like, yeah, do I need this on a record? No, but do I love having it? Yes. Yeah. And the cool thing about those LPs and vinyl is that the artwork is so much bigger. Mm-hmm. Like it was cool on CDs because you would get the fold out notes and stuff. Um, but yeah, the vinyl is just so beautiful and just the aesthetics of it are awesome. Yeah. 
Well, nowadays records come with like, it depends on the record. Sometimes it's just a small insert, but sometimes they have like basically the whole CD booklet, except it's the size of a record. And it's just awesome because you get all the pictures in there super big and all the lyrics written out. And I don't know. I love that stuff. Yeah, me too. And that, you know, that stuff can be pricey, like new LPs now are 30, 40 bucks. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like, I think they are giving you a lot for, for that. Price. You know, it's like if you're going to go on Apple Music and buy a track for 99 cents, it's like you have sort of nothing to hold on to. So, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Cool. Maybe it's just my old person brain, but I feel like, well, no, I've been downloading music since actually, just kidding. I wasn't downloading music legally ever. <laughs> but no, <laughs> uh, I've always had a hard time organizing my music library when it's digital and it's continued to be a problem. Um, especially since those early songs that I downloaded weren't necessarily like labeled correctly. And now it's just, yeah, it's like 500 gigabytes of chaos. Yeah. Just untitled album and track mm-hmm. two. Did you ever do the um like mix CDs where you would burn, you would put oh, yeah. MP3s on? Yeah. And make mix CDs. Yeah. All the time. That was like in high school, one of my best friends and I would, Evie, we would trade CDs back and forth, like mix CDs we made uh, from like music that neither of us had discovered yet. Like that was just our thing. It was just like sharing new music and like being excited about making a good mix. Yeah. Was YouTube, would you say was like your big band or were there some other ones in there that were you also kind of obsessed with or has that been like a through line for mm. you? I think it, my music journey is like a little bit complicated because like I said, I was like classic rock. Like you catch me in middle school. I'm like, I'm the nerdy classic rock kid. Like everybody just knew that about me. I had no shame about it. Um, Enter maybe sophomore year of high school. And I'm much more interested in what we would call indie, we used to call indie rock. I'm much more interested in finding new music and new bands. And I think a lot of that was because I met Evie, but also like there was a lot of good local artists here in Portland. So started going out to shows a lot more because I was, getting old enough to do that on my own. And um, that sort of shifted gears for me. So I just had so much music and I was so interested in in the new stuff for a while that I wasn't YouTube obsessed. I would obviously still listen to their albums and I still, I've never stopped loving them. But um, very recently, I don't know why, but it's like my obsession just kicked back in. Like I, I, they came out with a new album and I was like, wow, there's all these amazing songs. So I've been going back and like, even um, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience were not albums I really listened to because I wasn't on my like YouTube fan kick at the time. It's like I know songs off them. So, but I've, I've now gone back and, and listened to those as well. I, fortunately, those were the only two I missed. Um, they didn't put out a lot for a little while, which surprises me because um, No Line on the Horizon was 2009. And then only two albums since then before the new one. So that is interesting. It's like they've been going since 1976, it seems like. Maybe right at the beginning, there was a couple of their members, but essentially it's been since that long. Mm-hmm. And I was just like writing down kind of the, the dates of these albums. And it seems like they would take a year or two off once in a while. But um, yeah, it was, let's see. So usually, yeah, like gaps of two years between albums in general, right? Yeah. Two or three. 
Yeah. It was probably two or three. I have here, yeah, No Longer in the Horizon was 2009. They did a tour that year, but then Bono got kind of a background. Through. But it, it was like, yeah, after that 360 tour for No Line on the Horizon, that was like three years later, Paul McGinnis, their, their longtime manager since the beginning, yeah, finally stepped down. And then they got the new album in 2014. So that was three years, I guess, there. And then the Innocence and Experience Tour was 2014. Oh, and then, yeah, there's a little bit of a gap there because Bono had open heart surgery Mm -hmm. at the end of 2016. And then, yeah, I wasn't aware of any of this going on because I wasn't a fan, but they they did the whole Joshua Tree tour, which is for the 30th anniversary of the album. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, they were doing stuff around 2017 2019 but like 2021 to to now has been like there's been a lot with this songs of surrender and then of course the vegas thing like there's mm-hmm. like a lot of you too right now yeah it does feel like all of a sudden it's like Bado's memoirs came out and if you have audible you can listen to Bado actually reading the book and it's and there's clips of songs played throughout and it's just absolutely incredible so i recommend that but um also, the new album, um, Songs of Surrender, is just them reprising old tracks. And I heard Bono talk about it in an interview. He was basically saying, like, well, this is how we would want to play these songs at our age now. You know, like, we're not, you know, we're we're refining and we're kind of improving and on this music. I thought that was a really cool take. Like, honestly, I still love the originals for a lot of them because some of the, like, early tracks um, – aren't as punky as they were back in the day yeah. because they do a lot. This one's a lot of acoustic, but I appreciate that like musically, they just like a song is always evolving. I, I just think it's super cool. Yeah. That kind of amazed me. Cause I, I had sort of some idea of what it was. Um, so yeah, as you said, songs of surrender, it's kind of been released kind of in tandem with the book or, or shortly thereafter a collection of four. It's long. It's like 40 songs. So I didn't get all the way through it from the back catalog. But the crazy thing is, as you said, it's not only acoustic takes that sound different. It's like Bono changes the words in some of them. Oh, like, yeah. He's not, which is like, you think almost for most bands, it'd be like, well, you can't do that. Like, that makes it a new song. Like, But he just doesn't care. Like, I think it's just such a Bono thing to be like, well, I, just, I feel like putting some new words in or to me, this meaning is shifted so that I will perform it accordingly. No, totally. And like, if you listen to a lot of their live recordings, um, he changes the words all the time. Mm. Like, it's just a thing, like, like in subtle ways, not hugely significant, but like, I was thinking about the fact that um, my favorite video um, for, oh yeah, until the end of the world. So like in the, their video, the one that's like on the DVD of the videos that you used, there used to be DVD, well, there still are probably DVD collections of like the best videos from 80 to nine or no, I think they only have it from the later era because there weren't that many videos. Mm. I'm going to have to yeah. remember that now. I have the DVD, but yeah, it's a uh, like best videos from 90 to 2000. I think um, on that DVD, there's apparently this was the video that they were showing. I was too young at the time in 19, 19- 91 I was two years old so Mm. but um, apparently this was the video and he changes one of the lyrics like instead of saying you in one of the lyrics he says I which really just changes the meaning entirely and I was like and this was the video but if you listen to the track on the album it's different 
That is crazy. Cause like other artists, like Liam will do the thing, but he'll do that at live concerts, you know, where he'll either mix up the words or he'll purposely kind of change it just to be fun. But that's like a, that's like a live performance. So something about doing it for the official music video of the song yeah. and changing it is like, people don't do that. Yeah. And well, here's the thing, like the official music video is of a live performance, which mm. is also odd, but, yeah. but it has this opening too with a newscaster who's like, I don't, this is a great video, by the way, people should watch the video for until the end of the world. Because one of my favorite parts of it is at one point, Bono's on stage, he walks over like one of those cameras that's like on a rig. And he pulls the camera down. He starts like sloppy kissing it. And then he pulls it down to his crotch and just like thrusts into it a couple of times. And like you can see the camera's like rig sort of resisting it because it's like you're not supposed to move it with your hands. It's supposed to be automated. And I just find it to be the most like hilarious thing ever. Yeah, he's wild on stage. I wish in prep for this, I meant to watch more live videos, but I did see one. I don't think it was Live Aid, but it might've been, it's one of those early, I think, war tour videos, or Mm. or maybe it was Live Aid, but he starts, um, I think it's during Sunday, Bloody Sunday. They've got like a rope ladder for some reason that goes up and he starts climbing up into like the lighting and the stage rigging. And you're like, what are you doing? That's like wildly dangerous. Like, but it's like Bono. He's just, he just, I don't know. He has to like do something with his energy. No, I can't remember exactly which video that is, but it's on the rattle and hum DVD that I Mm. have, um, which is like kind of a documentary slash a bunch of videos of the performing. Like they do the spontaneous one out of the back of a truck where they just are like, hey, we're just going to like post up here and play music. And it's pretty great. That's where they do uh, All Along the Watchtower cover of that. Oh, yeah. I need to check that one out. That definitely came up a few times in research. And it seems like a very Bono-y thing where like he's trying to do something crazy. And then the critics Mm -hmm. are all like, you pompous Bono. And I I know know they got some flack for it, but I definitely want to check it out. No, for sure. It's all like very, I don't know. I feel like every time they do something, it's new and exciting. Well, that's a big thing about the band is like they always, um, remember there's like this quote after Joshua Tree, they were like, we're going to go back and think and reinvent ourselves and come back to you or something like that. It always stood out to me because they did. Then you get Octune Baby in 91. And you're like, that's a completely different band than Joshua Tree. Like, it just is. They had a completely different sound. You can always still tell it's U2 because Edge's guitar is so distinctive and Bono's vocals are so distinctive. But they played around with so many different sounds. And in the later 90s, like when they did the pop album, they were doing a lot of like uh, collaboration with DJs, like Paul yeah. Oakenfeld especially, and trying to like really get into this more like techno-y sound, which if you think about like the roots rock element of Joshua Tree or like the sort of, you know, punk element of their early stuff it's just yeah they changed yeah i remember seeing that quote actually and i don't know if we should go maybe we'll attempt to go rewind here a little and do a little bit more of a historical overview of, although i know it's dangerous because it could like really grow and la- like we could really stretch this out <laughs> <laughs> sorry i know i've already been babbling so much so let you take the the lead here no but it's good yeah, I don't, we kind of talked about this before we started recording, um, and I will try to make it fast. But so the band really doesn't start until 1976, but they are an Irish band. All four boys are from Dublin, and they all went to the same school called Mount Temple Comprehensive. 
And Bono is born in 1960, and the others are around that time. And if you know anything about Irish history, you've probably heard of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And um, Dublin is not in Northern Ireland, but nonetheless, like that environment, I think, is really important. So are you okay with me doing my little shrunk up history of the Northern Ireland thing? Yeah, heck yeah. It's informative, right? Yes, I will try and make this as brief as possible. Irish history, I think, um, I mean, the big part is like a lot of people know about the Troubles and they know it's something to do with Catholics and Protestants, but it's like, where did that all start? And so I kind of went down this rabbit hole and what you find out is that the Troubles kind of started in the 60s, but then that comes from conflict that was in the 20s and that comes from the Catholic Protestant thing, which really happened like the Elizabethan era. And it all goes back to like, the beginning of England as we know it. Like you could go back forever. But basically, first bullet point is William the Conqueror and the Norman invasion. So England used to be very tribal and it was always, they were kind of squabbling and that sort of got united in 1066 when William the Conqueror came over from Normandy and France and sort of became the first king of England. Ireland, of course, is that island off the west coast of the main island of the United Kingdom. He never really got his hands on that. That was occupied by these people called the Gales, and they kind of always resisted occupation, even though technically England and William sort of claimed that, like his title was also Lord of Ireland, but they never really managed to kind of like get their hands on Ireland. So that continued for maybe like 500 years. And at that point in time, everybody was Catholic back then in Western Europe. Like the Pope was doing his thing. Um, so then we fast forward to the Protestant Reformation, which is like the first thing that was Christian that was not Catholic was when Martin Luther nails his theses to the door. And he starts this other kind of, uh, he's, he basically sees problems in the Catholic Church and he kind of starts this alternate uh, thing called Protestantism. Like 15 years later, Henry VIII, you've probably heard of him. He had his six wives. Well, his first one uh, was Catherine. Now she gave him a daughter, but he really wanted a male heir and he's dissatisfied with the situation. So he wants a divorce. The Pope won't give it to him. So he decides, you know what? Fuck you guys. Uh, I'm going to start my own church, which is what like, it's like a temper tantrum of a king. <laughs> so he starts the Church of England. So when people say C of E or Church of England, that was Henry VIII breaking England out of the Catholic Church, um, which started a whole bunch of conflict in England. But basically, um, his daughter, Elizabeth I, who was Queen of England for I don't know how many years until she was super old and died, she kind of solidified her father's legacy and England has been Protestant ever since. And her, her heir, King James, you know, the King James Bible, that's where that comes from is her heir, King James. Um, so as she's dying, I don't, I don't know what year she died, but it was like early 1600s. So this whole time, England's kind of always had its designs on Ireland, but it never truly did until this battle called the Siege of Kinsale, which is basically the English finally go over there. They've been squabbling with Spain and some other war that I don't remember the name of, but Spain was trying to help Ireland just to kind of fuck over England. But England finally sort of wore out Spain and they were able to take Ireland. The important part of that really 
is that there were these kind of Gaelic kings up in the northeast corner of Ireland, that area that we know as Northern Ireland. And they were all having to surrender. And their kind of last ditch attempt was to flee their lands and go to Spain to try and get more support and more help. And when they did that, they left all those lands in Northern Ireland uh, vulnerable. And so that part of Northern Ireland, England sends basically an organized colonization of Protestants and English colonizers to like specifically colonize that corner of Ireland just to kind of get a stronghold of Protestantism in Ireland. So that specifically is like why that corner of Northern Ireland is like more Protestant and more royalist and kind of more English than the rest of Ireland. So that I thought was interesting. It's like, oh, that goes all the way back to like the end of the Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, so basically then, of course, fast forward to like World War One, the whole world's at war. England right after World War One is starting to lose all its old colonies. The British Empire is like crumbling. And Ireland is one of those countries that wanted to be completely independent. So right after World War One in, in 1919, Ireland decides to secede from the kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and declare themselves the Republic of Ireland. And this only lasts for a year or two until there's a treaty and a ceasefire. And if you want to learn all about all this stuff, there's, I don't know if you ever saw that film, uh, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. It's got Killian Murphy in it. Oh, no, I've never seen that. It's like the Irish War of Independence is like, Ireland breaking off from Great Britain. And then there's a treaty, but then there's this thing called the Irish Civil War. So the treaty is like it's like a ceasefire thing. So Great Britain agrees to give Ireland independence, kind of. They're like, well, you can have your own police force and your own army, and we're not going to have any say over how you govern yourselves. But you still do have to be a British Commonwealth, and you still have to swear like loyalty to the crown. And so some people in Ireland were like, you know what? We're fucking tired of fighting. It's been World War One, and then this whole War of Independence, we're tired. Let's just agree to it and then get more later. That's like, that's how Northern Ireland came about is because like people in Northern Ireland were like, okay, we accept being ruled by the UK. Essentially, yeah, because part of that treaty is that counties who wanted to st- – it's like Brexit. Well, it's not like Brexit, but it's like if mm-hmm. you wanted to opt – to stay into the United Kingdom, you could do that. And all those counties up in Northern Ireland immediately did that. Huh. Yeah. So they, so according to that treaty, the Republic of Ireland could, could be a commonwealth, but then those counties up in Northern Ireland voted to stay part of the United Kingdom. It's, it's weird. I've never, I've, I've always like been like, oh yeah, there's this whole thing with conflict in Northern Ireland. It's always been a thing, but I never stopped to think, yeah, why initially did this relatively small part of Ireland, like, no. let's be clear, if you look at a map, Northern Ireland is not half of Ireland. It's like, I don't know, one fifth, maybe. Yeah. It's real small. So Yeah, it's weird. And it's like the rest of Ireland is mostly predominantly Catholic. And so it's just that corner that's Protestant and sort of you would call royalist. And they often say royalist versus Republicans. And Republicans is referring to the, the Republic of Ireland as an independent Ireland separate from Great Britain. So, yeah, people in Northern Ireland were great with that treaty because they could stay under uh, the United Kingdom. They liked that. But, of course, the Republicans wanted a united Ireland. They just wanted Ireland to be its own thing. 
after the treaty was signed, it starts this civil war, which lasts about a year, and it's pretty violent. And then that's when you hear about the IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army. I think the the people that were that wanted the treaty to stay on were called the Free State or the Irish Free State. So then this starts like a civil war, and you know it's the type of thing that tears families apart and all that stuff. And so it was a, a pretty violent year, but in the end, even England and the and the UK sends in kind of you know reinforcements eventually to help out the Irish Free State fight these like IRA people. And so at the end of that year, the treaty stands. And that's why we have Northern Ireland is a part of the UK and Ireland is a separate country. And that's the way it is today. So that was in the 20s. And so the troubles then, it's like all that was kind of simmering and brewing for 40 years. And then um, basically in the late 60s, what's going on over the United States is the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. And it was getting pretty bad over here, especially in 1968 when Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were both assassinated. And I would say that that probably influenced what was happening over here because kind of what started off the troubles was there was a Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association that was based in Belfast. And Belfast is kind of the the main big city up in Northern Ireland. And they had this big protest to advocate for the rights of the Catholic minority that was living in the Protestant majority Northern Ireland. And that basically, it just got out of hand. And there were these things called the Northern Ireland riots that happened in 1969. Uh, There was this thing called the Battle of Bogside. And it's basically just Catholic protesters and then Protestant sort of police force and Northern Ireland kind of police and army ended up clashing. And so it's violence. I think at that time people were probably killed. Um, This isn't the Bloody Sunday thing yet, but anyway, you see walls coming up, these peace walls designed to Mm -hmm. keep Catholics and Protestants separate. So that's all happening in Belfast. It it is kind of trickling down into Dublin and even like northern England, like where the Gallaghers were growing up in Manchester. They were growing up at the same time in in the mid to late 70s. And they describe the Irish community as pretty insular. And like, I think Noel uses the term, the Irish were always circling the wagons as in keeping a protective circle around each other. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the sentiment from when you were in England is like, being Irish is not a good thing. And, and you know that all yeah. this violence is going up in Northern Ireland. So anyway, to kind of close that in, in 1972, an incident happens called Bloody Sunday, which you two will write about in that song. And it's... um another one of those protests got out of hand and British soldiers shoot 26 unarmed civilians during the march in Derry. This is even further up North in Derry and 14 people die. So that's kind of like that sparked yeah. other protests and just got really out of hand. And um, if you watch the show, Derry girls, it's, it's pretty cute, but you, that is the background of Derry girls. Cause this all goes from the late sixties all the way up to the 1998 good Friday agreement. And I don't really understand that agreement, but that's the end of Derry girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't watched that far in Dairy Girls, but um, the, yeah, the whole thing is like, so violence nominally stopped in Northern Ireland. It didn't really, like, it didn't stop completely, obviously, but like, there was definitely, there's been, actually, I, I don't know what the current situation is. I was just thinking about the class I took when I was in college, which was like 13 years ago, but basically the IRA like rebranded themselves and- became peaceful and wanted to do these peace talks and Mm. like everyone was sitting out at a table and they were doing that for a long time. 
um, with also mediators from the UN. Mm. But also there's still, there was still the people who call themselves the RIRA, the real IRA. So they would oh, keep wow. doing things like bombing. So there's a difference between like the RIRA and the PIRA. We don't need to get in the weeds, but there were still people like enacting kind of like guerrilla bombings to stop the unwanted presence of the English. But I guess that's sort of tangential to the point. But yeah, uh, nothing is really, as far as I know, things have gotten more peaceful in Ireland, but nothing's like really been resolved in Northern Ireland per se. I think people are still at odds. So I remember, I don't know the details of it because I don't really keep politically informed, but I remember when the Brexit stuff was happening in 2016, there was some kind of discussion over the the hard border or the soft border between oh, yeah. Northern Ireland and Ireland. Because if Brexit, if uh, the UK exits the European Union, that of course means Northern Ireland exits the European Union and Ireland is in the EU, I believe. Um so then that that creates like a, a border right there that's complicated. It's, it's like that border I think is in like goes through Derry, I believe. I think Derry is which is probably why it's an interesting place for that show to set. Um but yeah, people were concerned about how that border would then be managed if if half of Ireland is now completely outside the EU. It's like not just an Irish border now, it's a, a European Union versus not European Union border. That's such a real thing and yeah ireland definitely is in the eu and like oh my gosh i never even thought about that and this has got to be so essentially this is setting up for like the climate that was the background for you too and and here's what's really interesting about you running down the history is i always kind of i guess because i became a fan of theirs when i was pretty young and so i just collected these ideas that i never rethought in my mind i was like oh well they grew up in the republic of ireland they weren't affected by that i don't think they weren't affected by it but like no ireland is like the island of ireland is so small this is all bleeding over like of course being in dublin they were very much affected by these conflicts and especially because you know the republicans in northern ireland want to become a part of the republic of ireland which is where you two grew up it's great i mean you're right that um even if they weren't up in um Belfast. I mean, I think it was definitely calmer in Dublin than it was like up in Belfast and Derry. But um, yeah, I remember a story that Noel told about because he and and the brothers would spend six weeks in County Mayo, which is on the west coast of Ireland. So it's like, but they would take a ferry, I think from Liverpool over to Dublin. And I think he he tells some story about when Mm -hmm. they were coming back into Liverpool, like, and I think it was their uncle would usually be driving them in a car and it would go on a ferry and then the car would come off the ferry. But before it came off or, or shortly thereafter, they would, um, a few times they got pulled over by the English, uh, either police or army. They, they had everybody get out of the car and they were like searching under the car and they had the sniffer dogs and whatever. And as like a kid, he was like pretty confused as to like what was going on. But he says that he remembers like that even in um, being so far away from it, living in Manchester, like it was definitely kind of front of mind being Irish in England. So, mm. um, so one interesting part that comes right out of that is like Bono is born into a kind of a mixed religious household. So his dad is Catholic and his mother is Protestant. Right. So, so it's like something that explains so much. It does. Like, you know, I think a lot of people look at Bono and they just go like, He's like, look at his religion. At least, like, oh, 
well, he's a Christian. Um, I mean, I don't like believing in things without without evidence. So I'm I'm not a religious person. So like from the outside looking in, you can just be like, Christians, oh, they, especially growing up in the US, like they dominate our culture. Like there's so much oppression that comes from this historical tradition of Christianity. Like we have a lot of fundamentalist religious people like just trying to oppress us here in the United States. Like, oh, gay and trans people are fundamentally wrong and shouldn't exist. Like that is something that comes out of Christianity. I, I know I don't need to explain this probably to almost anyone, but it is the thought that I have. And then seeing Bono, someone who is such an activist and loves everyone and who I admire so much, it is kind of hard to reconcile. But when you look at that past and when you think about, well, no, the culture you grew up in had more to do with whether you were Catholic or Protestant than it had to do with whether you were Christian or not. In Ireland, still, most people are Christian. Like, it's a very strong kind of background to the culture. And I guess maybe somewhat similar to like the traditions of Christianity and like South American culture, it's taken on its own life and become kind of like a, a symbol of the people. Yeah. A cultural like backbone. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. Yeah. Cause the strange thing is like it, like the Northern Ireland thing is uh, confusing because it's not exactly just like a religious, it's not like the Catholics and the Protestants have some ideological difference that they're always debating. It's just, it's almost like yeah. an, it became like an ethnicity thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it almost didn't matter what you believe. Like, I feel like in the U.S. you grow up, you don't even really know what Christian means because it's like you've got Methodist, you got Baptist, mm-hmm, you got Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you sort of can choose and switch between and stuff like that and convert or whatever. But over there, it's like kind of a heavier thing. It's like you, you hear stories from the those IRA stuff. Like people wouldn't ask you where you're from. They'd ask, are you a Catholic or a prod? You know, and it's like a, yeah. it's like such a strong label over there. Whereas over here, it's kind of like you're, we just hear the term Christian thrown about and that's kind of a, a less, um, I don't know, it doesn't really matter what kind to a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially nowadays, yeah. I mean, I still think there's always kind of been that thing with Catholics, like you're like Kennedy was the first Catholic president, I think. And True. They were like, oh, yeah, but that was a long time ago. So, but yeah, what is interesting about the conflict in Northern Ireland is like, yeah, if you're Protestant, you're aligned with the UK. If you're Catholic, you're aligned with Ireland, with the Republic of Ireland. So it's like, it's a political philosophy. Yeah. And, and that is a really weird thing to think about in a country where we're like, in our country, we're not that we do this, obviously, but we always say separation of church and state. Hmm. So to like really have that so transparently laid out is so interesting. And like, especially because we tend to think of faith as personal. Yeah. So like now it's, I, of course it's political, but political in a completely different way, you know? That's crazy. Yeah. I, I wasn't quite thinking about that in my head. I was like, yeah, it is a political statement is like how you worship. It's just mm-hmm. crazy. Right. But um, so I feel like that explains a lot about Bonnet because I, I didn't get too far in the book, but I, uh, one part I remember is he's, him saying in the beginning that his father kind of decided that like, well, the mother should have kind of a choice about where they go to church. So he did go to a Protestant church, but he said his dad would drive up the street to the, he would like drop them off, drive up the street to the Catholic church, take um, communion and then go to mass and then come back and be, he'd be waiting outside the church of this family. So it was a very like 
I don't know, it just seemed like a beautiful kind of egalitarian example for someone growing up on Ireland at that time, which is so conflicting to have that kind of like lovely compromise within the family. Yeah. It's like, wow, that probably informed a lot about, we'll get into this probably later, but his whole like good guy, like he's almost too good, which is maybe why some people don't like him, but it's like, yeah, it's an amazing growing up at that time, how he got a better example, I guess, than a lot of people probably. I think so. And I think from what evidence I have, Bono and his brother, they kind of came from a pretty loving family, you know, it, an open family. Bono's mom, of course, passed away, I think, when he was 14. Mm. Yeah. And so that was really affecting to his father. But there is even in the video, one of the the Anton Corbin video, who's Anton Corbin is a wonderful music video director, director of multiple things, not just music videos, but has done a ton of music videos for you too. And in the Anton Corbin music video for one, which is a song that is both talking about conflicts in the band and talking about um, basically the AIDS crisis and homophobia, Bono's father appears in the video and he like he just that. stands around. But like, okay, here's the other thing. All the members of the band in that video do drag. And there is definitely a scene of Bono in drag just hugging his father on a couch. Like his father doesn't do drag, but it's so cute. It's just like, I, I love it. Yeah, I think anything you learn about Bono, and we'll talk about this if we do any comparison with Oasis, but like Bono's relationship with the loss of his mother and then what losing his mother did to his father and his relationship with his father created some real distance. Mm-hmm. It's like very important to like who Bono is and his kind of need to be liked and his need to be noticed. So anyway, but it's I, I think probably there's a lot of sort of sweet moments within that. Like it's like obviously that that caused him some angst, but I think you're right that from what I've read, it's like he seems like there was a lot of love there, even if it wasn't said out loud. Yeah, I think so. And and obviously, like we all, when we're younger, kind of, maybe not all, but most people do go through some sort of like conflict with their parents and not understanding and the teenage rebellion. And, and on top of that, they have lost a huge part of their family, Bono's mom. But eventually, Bono's relationship with his father really grew. And his father was an opera singer, like not professionally, but he sang opera amateurly. And um, I like to think that even though he didn't sing much with Bono, like he sang around Bono. And that was probably like Bono's inspiration for like a lot of the way he uses his voice. That's just my extrapolation, but it does sort of seem like it. Yeah, I was trying to find words and I was reading other people's like write-ups about you too and because I was like what is you know you two I feel like it's is slated a lot for being like I read some article and I don't agree with it but it did kind of make me laugh so like you mentioned growing up with like classic rock a lot of people would call that dad rock for whatever <laughs> you sort of like this kind of hyper masculine like ACDC Def well, Leppard thing it was literally the albums that my dad had so that actually right. does seem accurate that's hilarious well this this writer called you two mom rock and I'm not, mm. like I don't totally I think it's because they were they perceive Bono and the lyrics maybe and maybe even the style of the music is like like softer, more emotive. I'm not sure. Like it's still definitely rock music, but I feel like, yeah. uh, let's see, I had a thought here where I was going with like, oh, I did lose my thought there. I think. That's okay. 
Um, I do think it's interesting, though, like, YouTube probably does have a lot of female fans. Like, I've never really thought about the gender ratio, but, like, I mean, it's hard not to have a crush on Bono, I'm not going to lie. And for anyone out there who disagrees with me, you're just straight up wrong. So, end of story. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we'll talk about it. So, the crazy thing for me, and as an Oasis fan as well, is, like, how big you two became – like they were, they, mm-hmm. they're one of the biggest bands in the world. They've been going since 1976. Um, they've done, uh, I think this last one was their 13th album, something like that. And the one of their, I feel like their biggest brags could be how well they've done in America. And then that whole thing became like a whole nother thing. It's like Bono's and really the, the whole band's relationship with America, which is like the Joshua right. Tree is kind of thematically that way. And like, they're just a big band and they seem to fit right in with this like big country, which like Oasis never figured out America. And I don't think America ever got Oasis, but they really, cause I think after they did boy, they did October and then they did war. And by the time they were touring for war, I think they were opening in America maybe, or were they su- still a support band? I don't know, but they like, they got to America and did well in America fast and early. They did. And I think I'm not hundred percent sure Maybe once I get a little further in uh, Bono's autobiography, I will know. But I'm not sure if um, they came to America or if America came to them. Right. And what I mean by that is like, just like, did they decide, oh, we need to tour the U.S. and then they kind of fell in love with it? Or was this already a fascination? Because clearly there's something about the United States that at least Bono is enamored with. Yeah. And I don't exactly know what it is. I think there's like a lot going on with him as like a personality and a dreamer and someone who likes to go big in all aspects of his life. I mean, it's hard for me to even understand Bono. Like I don't dislike Bono. Uh, I like Bono. I'm not quite like in love with Bono yet. I feel like maybe it's getting there. But one of the reasons is just like getting my head around him. You'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's such a character. And he's and he it's like some sometimes it's hard to understand like if he's for real or not. And it like, mm-hmm. like, uh, let's see, this is kind of jumping ahead. But let me, uh, I had some quote from a magazine. I think that was, I don't know. I was watching this NPR interview with him. Mm-hmm. And he was like talking about, and this is a recent interview. He was talking about his book and they were talking, I think about the term of like surrender and what he, and, and Bond is very intelligent. And that's one of the things that's most fun about his interviews is like, it's different from a lot of rock stars. Like he's articulate, like Liam Gallagher interviews are fun, but it's a very different, from like a Bono interview mm. where she, so she was asking him, I think what he means sort of by surrender. And he says something like, um, quote, just shut up and listen is kind of where I, I'm at at the moment. Which So he was talking about listening and kind of getting older and, um, I don't know, this abstract sense of surrendering. But it's like at the mm. same time, I'm like, Bono, you are doing an NPR interview, which is promoting the book you've just written about yourself, which is kind of promoting yeah. this album, which is kind <laughs> of promoting this the big, like this, this shows at the Vegas, it's like the most – Biggest, a most amazing. It's like shaped like a sphere. It's all this thing itself is a speaker, mm-hmm. and they tried. I think originally they were going to do like three shows, and it's ballooned to like twelve or so. I can't remember how many, but it's like it's so popular, and they're going to make millions of dollars. So I feel like that is just one little thing. But at the same time, I don't think he's a hypocrite 
Like he means what he says, but it is just like this contradiction of Bono as like a, a, a person. You're like, I don't know how to get my head around him sometimes. You know, I think that is extremely fair, but I also think like, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, right? Like Bono clearly... Sarah, in that video you sent me, A Day in the Life of the Edge, um, where Bono just follows Edge around with the camera, there's this one line at the start where, like, Bono's literally waking Edge up out of bed, and he's like, it's like, it's time to get up, you're gonna be, uh, you're gonna be on the the news or something like that, and Edge is like, I don't want to be on the news, you want to be on the news, and I feel like that summed it up so well, like, we know Bono wants attention, right? Yeah. But, like, we tend to perceive attention-seeking as negative. I think it's kind of neutral or maybe even positive because he uses all his attention seeking like, yes, it's for himself. We all do things for ourselves, but he also uses it as a platform to raise awareness. Um, and he loves that attention and he wants to talk and be heard. He's balancing it with activism. So I'm like, yeah, I, I think that's fine. <laughs> like, Also, yeah. I mean, there is something the fans get out of the music too. I think that's something that Bono's always known and other rock stars, I think have gotten like really depressed and sad because they don't feel like they're reaching anyone or they feel like their fame is superficial, but Bono's always at least expressed um, feeling very connected to his fans and feeling like when he's in that room, like there's love in the you know arena, there's love in that venue and he gets something back from that. And I don't think he's ever lost sight of it. Like some other people have. And all of this is, of course, just me extrapolating because I don't actually know the man. But no, I I agree. It's like a a new fan or someone just getting into YouTube. It's like the thing about Bono is that, um, yeah, he really like he is he is so emotive and he's like kind of this open conduit for the music. The thing, the opera thing. Maybe I was going to say this earlier. I, I don't remember. But it's like, yeah, his his voice is operatic. Like it's like it's yeah. always shooting up above whatever Edge is doing kind of minimally on guitar. And he's like, oh, the, one of the great quotes from his, his father that he mentions in the book is like, um, you're a baritone that thinks he's a tenor uh-huh. or something like that. So he's like, his natural register is probably lower, but he's always, and it's just like such oh, an appropriate so thing for his personality. Is that it's always going up, oh, his grasp always exceeds his reach. Like he's always trying to do more than he probably Mm-mm. should, like musically and of course, yeah, you're right. It's like with the whole celebrity. Th- I think part of it is like people's kind of skepticism with Bono. And maybe it's sort of a British thing. To, it's like you always hear the difference between British humor and American humor. It's like, a, like British people are just like darker, kind of more like self-deprecating. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true, but like like his um, shininess and enthusiasm and passion, you're almost like, are you for real, man? And he really is. And I think he said he uses his celebrity, you know, he's trying to make it useful, which to me speaks to sort of the differences between Oasis and U2. And I don't think it's as simple as like U2 is positive and Oasis is more like critical because Oasis music no. and Noel songwriting is really positive as well. It's like live forever, you know? Yeah. But but I think there's something about um, Bono and it's like sort of collective, we can do it kind of attitude versus Oasis is like, the Gallagher brothers grew up kind of in a hard knock life. And when they were able to get money and get themselves out of Manchester and away from their situation, it's like they were like, 
fuck you guys. I'm going to buy a Rolls Royce and a fucking fur coat. and I'm going to spend my money the way I want to and buy a big house. So it's like this very like individual focus, like I'm just going to have it, man. I'm going to do all the drugs and drink all the alcohol and have all the sex. And, you know, it's like it's very self-indulgent, really. But you kind of admire them for it, whereas something about the way Bono is like, I don't know, Noel had some quote that he's like, he's good friends with Bono. He's like, he's like, yeah. I've stood by Bono all these years. And I know why people don't like him is because he's a do-gooder. But he's like really a do-gooder. He's like, people like me because I'm kind of a do-batter. <laughs> but I think it's like something about... I don't know if people like, it's like Sh- people like Sean Penn going to like Ukraine. People kind of roll their eyes, but it's like, no, Sean Penn went to Ukraine to help people. Like, I yeah, I don't know where right. I was wrapping that up, but no, no, it's a it's an excellent point. Like, I just think there is something, and like we're lingering a lot, I guess, on Bono because he has such a personality and such a presence, and the rest of the band is very happy to stand behind him. But they all have their own humanitarian projects, mm-hmm. and like. The whole band, and like this isn't that uncommon. I think a lot of celebrities really do try, probably not most, but many do try to do what they can. It's just that, like, I think U2 is especially public. Well, at least Bono is especially public about it. Yeah. But yeah, I don't understand the attitude where people are like, oh, you're just doing that. You still have millions of dollars. What are you doing trying to do good for the world? It's like, Everyone should do good for the world. Like, okay, they have a giant swimming pool, whatever. They can have a giant swimming pool and do good for the world. They're not contradictory statements. Yeah, I agree. One of these things, and um, I'll link it, and I've mentioned it before, but David Brooks wrote this article called The Too Muchness of Bono. He summarizes a lot of the book and stuff, but um, okay, here we go. This is kind of like, I feel like what you said about other celebrities doing good things. It's not just Bonnet. It's true, but I think he is exceptional. And uh, I'll read this quote from David Brooks about Bono's activism. So he says, celebrity activists are in bad odor these days. Who cares what privileged superstars think? Bono has certainly fallen into many of these traps, but he is also a celebrity activist like no other. He knows who the deputy national secretary advisor is. He knows who the staff on the Senate Appropriations Committees are. He shows his face not just at large televised events, but in one-on-one meetings lobbying House staffers and mid-level White House officials on developing world debt relief and money for drugs to combat HIV. Quote, one of the greatest characters in my life over the last 25 years has been the capital city of the United States of America, he writes. David Brooks goes on to like quote this funny moment where he's in the White House with George W. Bush and he's like talking about advocating more money and resources to HIV. Mm. And George Bush has to say, interrupt and say, can I speak for a moment? I am the president of the United States. And so it's like, but the point <laughs> is like that, yeah, lots of celebrities do this, but Bono, maybe with only the exception of Sean Penn's kind of at that level where like he is yeah. actually an expert on like this system and he wants mm-hmm, to be able to mm-hmm. get into that system enough and work with the politicians to be able to make actual change. And he did with like, the HIV AIDS things in Africa, I don't have the numbers in front of you, but like, it seems like his work yes. worked and he raised a lot of money for that. And I and just seeing him, you know, so there were a lot of kind of bleeding heart liberals and I don't use that term derisively like a lot of conservatives do, but like seeing Bono with his arm around George W. Bush was really like a lot of fans who are more liberal did not like to see that, but it's like, 
he worked with yeah. George W. Bush to get action done. And it's like, isn't that what we want? It's like, even if we didn't vote for George W. Bush, even if we don't like what he did in Iraq, it's like, shouldn't we be glad that he put money towards HIV, you know, benefits in uh, in Africa? Yeah. Like, that was a good thing. And I feel <laughs> like in America, especially, we're just so used to kind of like on both sides being so polemic, I guess. Like there's good yes. guys and bad guys. And a lot of that is like, I will say I vote Democrat and I don't like a lot of things Republicans have done, but you know, demonizing doesn't always help the situation. If there were more Bonos out in the world working with more Republicans, it would probably be a good thing. And anyway, that's off my soapbox. But yeah, he's like, he's really good at like the activism thing. Oh, for sure. And like, honestly, oftentimes I just ask myself, like, he seems like one of those people, like, I, I feel like I need to rest a lot, you know, like I need my downtime. Votto feels like one of those people that I'm always jealous of. I'm like, how are you, how do you keep going like the Energizer Bunny? Like you're in this superpower band, you're doing all of this activism, you're you're meeting with world leaders and you're doing side projects and you're writing a book and you're raising a family. Well, I, his kids are grown, but he did raise a family of with, you know, he has three children, like, Holy, and he's married. He's been married since like he was 20, 18. I can't even remember when they got married. He's been married yeah. for fucking forever. They've been dating since he was literally like 15. Yeah, I, I keep mentioning Noel, but because he's a great storyteller and he's friends with Bono. But just like two days ago, he did this interview and he told this hilarious Bono story. I want to ask you before you go, because I know when you come to Dublin, you're, you're pals with Bono from U2. <laughs> and um, you, there, 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 you have to be in the whole of your health to party with that man. You, you, you've said this before. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if you've recovered from that time you went out with him a few <laughs> years ago. Um, which was, was it in his house? I mean, it sounds like it was like... No, a, I, w I woke... If it's the story you're referring to, yes. I, w I, w I, woke up in his, I woke up in his house. I had no idea I got there. And That's we, the one. We, 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 were, we, were, we were on tour. We were due in Paris to do a show uh, the next day. And um, so alcohol had been taken on board and uh, I was hanging the worst I'd ever felt in my entire life. Shane McGowan was involved. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, understood. One of those nights. Yeah. And uh, Try and have the hair of the dog on the plane and all that. And I got to the hotel in Paris and, uh, before the plane was landing. And B says, look, I've got, I've, I've got to go and see somebody, but I'll see you back at the hotel. And I was like, thank God he's going. <laughs> I was like, thank God he's going. So he, he goes off in uh, some big motorcade and I get back to the hotel and I'm dying to get into bed. And I thought, well, I ordered some food uh, and I was in a mess, like properly in a mess. I had the shakes. And as I was waiting for my food to come, I just turned on the telly. And there he is with the president of France. <laughs> right? In front of the world's press. And I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Made you a know, difference, though. Yeah, it's just like, well, I, there was nearly a fatality. Like, I nearly died. <laughs> and, there, and there he is discussing the monetary situation in the, somewhere with somebody about something. And I was like, Max, who puts the batteries in this guy? <laughs> He's like, just... So much energy all the time. And you're like, yeah. I mean, that right well, now with the Vegas thing, they're doing the biggest shows. Well, yeah. it's not the biggest venue, but like that whole thing is like, I would like to get some people on who understand that Ticketmaster thing going on because it's like kind of a disaster, but it's also like 
the demand for that band right now to go see them in Vegas is insane. I know. I'm like, ugh. I have so many feelings about that. I like, I want to go, but there's just, there's just no way. <laughs> there's no way. Like it's not only, you know, is it, it's not a, well, it's just hard. It's like, I don't think anyone, any, I think you're going to have to work to get some tickets to that. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'll try to find some YouTube fans. Too. I know there's a couple on Twitter that I've been following that are like in the old school, like paid to subscribe kind of fan club that YouTube's had for a long mm-hmm. time and they can't even get tickets. And it's like, Oh yeah. Kind of a disaster. I know it's sad. It's like, I consider myself to be like very much a YouTube fan, but like not to the level of, I, I don't know if I'm a fan of anything to the level that some people are a fan of U2. Yeah. Um, I mean, which is wonderful. I mean, I think I love them more than I could ever love any band ever, for sure. But some people are like, this is like their life. It's like the people who follow the Grateful Dead, you know, like around yeah. the country. Like that that's what these people do is they are obsessed with you two. And like I say I'm obsessed, and I am, because I will talk about them any chance I can get. But I'm not uprooting my whole life to try to find a way to get to their concert, you know. Like Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and ticket prices are so expensive anyway in general, mm-hmm. not to mention mm-hmm. these, but um, – well, we've talked a lot about – I feel like there's a lot of directions we can go. We talked a lot about Bono. Um, maybe if you could tell us about um, – obviously, the, the Edge is the lead guitar player. Um, he's probably the most second known, and then, of course, the rest of the band, Larry and Adam. Um, can you maybe give us a, a, maybe a brief overview of, of sort of the personalities of those guys a little bit? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like we spoke about, a lot of people focus on Bono, but like, um, so this whole band came up together as very, very young people, as we mentioned before. Larry Mullen Jr. is the drummer. He is the youngest member of the band. So when these guys were like playing and they were around like, well, actually, he's only six months younger than Edge, I think. But yeah, he's the youngest member. People always say he's a baby face. But um, so some of these members... I think it's just because when the band was formed, Larry was only 14 and everyone else was like 15 or 16. Yeah. But um, here's the thing. Most of them kind of act like they're supporting members to Bono. Now, what you can tell from The Edge or uh, David Evans is that he really loves Bono and really supports him, which is probably why there's been so much Edge and Bono slash Vic. But they are very close friends. And Edge actually has this wonderful dry sense of humor that I feel like a lot of people don't pick up on. Like, he'll just say off, he's quiet. So he'll say like offhand things that shows, you know, or on interviews because he like, he almost doesn't want to be noticed. Mm-hmm. And he wants Bono to be noticed, maybe so that he doesn't have to be noticed. But then he'll say this stuff that's like so, it's so funny, but it's like, it's off to the side as if you would never like catch what the joke was. Sometimes you're not even sure. He's so deadpan. You can't tell if he's joking. Yeah. Um, yeah. He does seem like the ultimate Bono hype man. Like in that little homemade video we're talking about, I think there's a moment where they're like, they were like on the beach or something. I don't know, but there's kind of some people around and Edge is doing something like, uh, where the streets have no name, Bono, it's Bono. And he's like pointing yeah. toward Bono. Yeah. Like, like kind of trying to get him noticed by the fans, which he might be just giving him some shit. But I think he genuinely, you're right. Like he is so supportive and like, he's like Bono's number one fan. It almost seems like. 
Yeah. And well, I think that scene is especially illustrative too, because like you said, he like, he might be giving him shit. He might be sincere. He's just so deadpan. You can't, it's probably a little bit of both. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, and Edge, like, you know, to speak musically, like Edge does a lot of the song writing in terms of melody. Bono's, Bono will also like pluck up melodies. He can play the guitar a little bit. Um, he does the majority of the lyric writing, though Edge has also written a few songs lyrically, and Edge sings a couple of songs, um, and he does backup vocals as well. Um, or even, like, full pieces of the music. People don't realize this, I think, because his voice, in a way, in a certain range, sounds sort of similar to Bono's, like, softer vocal tone. Yeah. But Edge does a lot of singing for the band, and, again, is one of the primary, like, melody writers, Whereas Bono does a lot of the, the lyrics. I mean, I, they all work this stuff out together, but. Well, and then you've got Adam Clayton, who's the bassist and oldest member of the band, though only like six months older than Bono. Um, I don't know why their ages used to matter so much to me. Maybe because I was also <laughs> a teenager. I don't know. It's almost but, like baseball um, card stats, I feel like, you know, like yeah. some some like sports fans like to know all the stats. It's So it's like as a band or, you know, a fan, you're like, you want to know all the little stuff. I think that's true. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. Like Adam, um, you don't hear a lot of interviews from him and it's, it's kind of odd, but you do get the impression that like, especially from their history, that he was always kind of the one like pushing for the band to succeed. And he is the one who made the connection with Paul McGinnis, their manager Mm. of forever, forever, forever. So like he, and he was like, before they became U2, he was, like, the manager, quote-unquote. Like, he just basically pushed – he considered himself, like, the one who was pushing the band to succeed and, and, like, getting the connections, like, getting into the gigs. And – oh, speaking of members of the band that people don't talk about quite as much, there is a really adorable video – where which stars Larry and you almost never see a video starring Larry, but um, it's the one for um, Electrical Storm, and he goes and like rescues a, a, well the person he rescues is played by a supermodel, but it's like a mermaid out of the water and it's all in black and white and he like takes this like beautiful mermaid and takes care of her and it's it's just absolutely adorable so. Oh, uh, yeah, Larry does seem like he's arguably sort of the most conventionally attractive member of the band. Mm-hmm. Like, even though he's all the way in the back, you're like, uh, I was I was like looking at like, yep. I always think Bon is attractive just because his personality is such a big part and he's an attractive looking guy. But yeah, I don't know. I was like, who's that like pretty boy in the back? It's like, oh, man, likes the drummer. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, he gets called the pretty boy all the time. And he is, though. He is like. He also has this kind of like just plain t-shirt, like short haircut that kind of like a little bit short on the sides, a little longer on top. It's like very James Dean, you know? Yeah. Like he could be James Dean. Yeah, that's funny. And there's there was some, I don't know, I think I read it in the book, but then I think night show hosts sometimes when they have the whole band like to joke that like or the original, I think when Larry, Larry's the one who put the flyer up to get the band to attract band members or whatever. And like originally, I don't know if he called it that or the story is originally his name for the band was going to be like the Larry Mullen band. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. I feel like that would be hilarious if it was like, 
It's so funny to think about. Yeah, that might be one of those apocryphal. But I mean, he was 14, so maybe. He was like, I'm a drummer. I need bandmates. Oh, man. Yeah. That's, I always forget about that. It's so funny. Yeah. And I don't know if they, some of them knew each other before. I don't know if like Larry knew Bono before the audition. I I think they all went to school together, but I, I don't think they were friends. I'd have to double check on that. Yeah, Bono mentions like his buddies were like Guji, um, who is the older brother, I guess, to the uh, the, the I when I first saw the the album artwork for like Boy and War, I was like, wow, those are so like evocative images. Yeah, and I guess that's Guji's little brother. Is that right? It is. Yeah, because they live down the block from each other. So yeah, and Guji, of course, is um, well, he's actually a painter and sculptor, but. One might know him from being in the Virgin Prunes with Gavin Friday. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah, all those guys were like all kind of boyhood friends, and then they ended up doing their bands. And mm-hmm. oh, that's so cool! Gosh, okay, yeah, that's kind of the the profiles of the other the other band members. Um, yeah, we did touch on it, but I feel like one of the big things with you two that people talk about, and that we could talk about, and that I could talk about also as an Oasis fan with. They have a very different relationship with religion. And I don't think U2 is certainly not a, like, they don't make Christian music as we think about Christian music. But if you know much about U2, they are open about the fact that they are, at least three of them are Christian. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess kind of as a listener growing up, did you know when you were listening to them that they were Christian? And did that ever, like... Maybe when you found that out, did that affect the way that you listen to their music at all? Well, you know, it's very interesting, actually, because like I was raised Catholic and my mom really wanted me to get confirmed in the Catholic Church. So when I was 14, I had to take these classes for confirmation um, and do that. And I did. I did that. Um, And I remember part of one of the classes for confirmation was this trip to this place in Portland called the Grotto which is really, it's really just a very beautiful, lovely park that has this like amazing viewpoint. You can just look out over these what like beautiful trees, but it's also technically a religious area. It has the stages, the stations of the cross in the park. And I remember going to that and I was already getting really skeptical about religion. Like my dad had talked to me. He said, you know, I, I said, I don't know how I feel about this. I really don't like you know, what the deacon is saying in these classes, blah, blah, blah. And my dad went, okay, I'm going to tell you something. I go to church with you and your brother and your mom, but actually I'm agnostic and you can be whatever you want to be. And I, at that point I went, I'm agnostic too. But he was like, but do this for your mother. So I did. But I remember I was at the grotto and I was listening to my Sony Walkman. And I was listening to you two albums, just staring out at the beautiful scenery there. And I guess that's sort of a tangential way to say that, like, I was like, I get it. I sort of get what faith is, what spirituality is for certain people. Like when you look at the world and you see this beauty, you know, you wonder where does it come from? So I guess the only way in which it's affected my relationship with the band, because when I first started listening to them, I really hadn't, I don't maybe thought too much about it. I was just like, well, Christianity, that's just what we do, right? We go to church, like mom makes me do it. As I got older, especially now, you know, in my 30s, I do often reflect on 
why people believe in the things that they do. Like I mentioned before, I, I just don't think it's reasonable to believe in things without having evidence. It's one thing to like, like I said, be like, yes, there's something wonderful and magical in this world. It's another thing to be like, I firmly believe that the sky wizard created this wonderful, <laughs> yeah. magical thing. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess I take it with a grain of salt and I sort of go, you know, understanding U2's background and cultural history. And I do think that Bono is an open-minded person. Well, I think they all are. I, I shouldn't just be talking about Bono. He's just the one who's been the most vocal about his faith. But I think all the members are open-minded people. They just, like, this is the way that they found to center themselves in the world. And as much as I would probably, if I had a chance to sit down with them, be like, hey, can we talk about that a little bit? Like, why do you believe in Sky Wizard? Yeah. Um, I think they're not necessarily unique because there are other Christian people who do this too. But they're, they don't fall on the same level as like, like I mentioned, some of the like hateful people who had strict adherence to really poor interpretations of the Bible, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I know in an interview that Bono had said uh, something about how organized religion in the past, he's like, it's often used to beat people over the heads with. So I think mm -hmm. you're right that he has an open mind of, as far as like, he doesn't ask that people subscribe to their religion. And it's interesting because like, when I listen to knowing it now that they're Christian, because I don't think I thought about when I was a teenager and hearing those like vertigo commercials, like nothing about that oh, yeah, sort of yeah. evokes Christianity. But some, you know, some of their songs like, and I think that the way that live shows have been described, it's like almost, uh, uh, not, not I don't want to say like a church-like experience, but like there is something to like, I think Bono's trying to connect with his audience in a way that like, if only mm. sort of a, a preacher could do like and be as as good at it as oh, Bono yeah. and, and there's some of their song like I think of like a beautiful day it sounds kind of like I think what he's trying to do is like unify everybody sort of together in this thing that's bigger than us which is kind of spiritual at least yeah well and I think you know there's yeah he is inspired by preachers in a way like the the connection you can get like he obviously like well maybe this isn't obvious but um and rattle and hum um he goes and connects like there's some versions of songs where he gets like a a gospel church a black gospel like gospel choir i mean like in a, a black church to help yeah. him out and sing back up and so like i feel like that's kind of a piece of where he's coming from with like religion can be this like wonderful or church at least can be this wonderful experience of going and celebrating community and celebrating a shared belief. And well, again, I, I'm not on board for that belief. The aspect of community is incredible. And he sees that and he's been inspired by preachers who like really inspire, I don't know, just they're celebrities in their own right. Right. Like I think yeah. one of the lyrics, I'm going to kick the darkness until it bleeds daylight. That's, oh. that's something he heard from a preacher on the radio. So um, yeah. And, and I can see it. I can't necessarily agree with it, but I can see it. I can see all those like beautiful things that the members of the band do see in their religious communities. Yeah. I remember thinking when I was in high school, I was, raised agnostic so I didn't have any particular belief but I had friends who are Christian and every once in a while your Christian friends try to take you to church or try to you know oh, yeah. show, show <laughs> you the way or whatever but 
Like I remember for a while I had a, I had a friend who would take me to her a couple of like after school kind of church service things. And I remember seeing them like sitting in church and stuff and kind of thinking like they must be feeling something that I'm not feeling and it must be a, a really good thing. And I would like try and sing along thinking like maybe I'll feel it this time or maybe I'll get it. And I never did, but I feel like there is like, I don't know, listening to you two, you're kind of like, maybe there's a little bit of that where you're like, I mean, Bono just, um, he has such a energy and a light about him that he kind of inspires you to, to be on his level. Um, Mm -hmm. and I suppose for him, yeah, I mean, he, he can't really separate. He says in the book, uh, songs are my prayers. So he, he can't really separate Mm his, uh, maybe like search for joy and stuff from Jesus. But, um, I think on, like I would have, I was trying to think it's like, well, does knowing that he's Christian kind of take away from it for non-Christians or does it sort of like, do you sort of Mm -hmm. admire that about him or does it because I, I feel like my religious journey was like I didn't really believe in anything but I thought well I thought maybe when I was real little in elementary school like my friends were Christian so I guess I'm Christian but we didn't go to church um, yeah <laughs> and then I got to high school and call it more college and I had like an asshole atheist phase where I was like F religion and F Christians and blah 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 <laughs> I, feel, I feel like a lot of us go through that and then you kind of grow up and chill out a little bit yep. and you're and then you sort of become a live and let live which is where I'm at now yep, yep. um <laughs> but yeah I, I almost feel like uh, though I'm not a Christian maybe despite that I don't know like a song like a beautiful day it's like you for to me personally I feel like I always connect with I don't know like a humanism angle like Yes, we're here, mm-hmm. and maybe there's there is a point, maybe there's not, but like it's a beautiful day anyway. Like just like so, his maybe he's kind of like coming out a little bit Christiany, but it's almost like it doesn't matter because it's like, yeah, I guess I don't, I'm not articulating, but like it doesn't seem to matter. He like hypes you up anyway. Yeah, well, no, you're right, and like I think a lot of us can have like much more negative reactions because of how you know, Christianity isn't our culture here, uh, to Christianity than to other things. Like, would we have a similar reaction to someone who like believes in astrology? Right. right. Like I have plenty of friends who are straight up, like come up to because I'm queer, you know, queer people just love astrology. Come up to me <laughs> like, yeah, what's your sign? Like, what's your chart? Like you're rising. And like, I do actually know all that stuff, but I also don't think that that has any solid evidence for it either. But it's just a belief. So what I like to think about it is like maybe like in a very similar way, like Christianity is just this lens that Bono views the world through. Yeah. And we all we all have our ideological mistakes. Like no one's perfect. And I like I'm sorry to imply that it's a mistake because I want to respect like people's beliefs. But again, like the thing is, is uh, the other thing that Bono often does is he like He'll talk about God as Allah or Yahweh, like the names for them in Hebrew or Arabic. So like he clearly is not like strictly adhering to Christianity. He just has yeah. like an idea of God. And I almost, I kind of imagine extrapolating a bit that like the Christianity is still just like a product of um, the culture of Ireland, right? Yeah, like that's kind of the form that he knows best, but he's kind of like, I don't know. Bono can't be contained in any <laughs> box. I feel like he's such yeah. a little mess of contradictions that um, 
that's part of the thing that's cool about him is like, yeah, again, I can't really get my head around him. Um, yeah, no, same. That's why I'm talking so much is because like that is honestly one of the strangest things about Bono to me is the, is the religion aspect. Cause I'm always like, but you seem like you wouldn't like, you just seem like you, you wouldn't just believe that because you seem so open-minded that you would take in all these ideologies. And like, in a way it sort of seems like he is, but then he is nominally Christian. So I'm like, it just blows my mind. I agree. Yeah. And like as an Oasis fan, I was trying to think about how that relationship with uh, religion or with God or Christianity or whatever is so different to both bands. Cause like, for Bono, it's like a thing that uh, it's like a redemptive thing, a thing that guides his life and his music. And like on one hand, it's it's work for them because they're still together. Like after all these years, this is crazy. Um, I feel like it's kind of these two sides of the coin for both of the bands. Because like think about God and Christianity. It's like in the best interpretation. It's like forgiveness or redemption is possible no matter what. Like you can, mm-hmm. either in Catholicism you can ask for forgiveness or in Christianity, yeah, I don't know. It's a li- maybe a little less formulaic or, or the, pr- the process is less clear, but basically you can be forgiven no matter what. But then at this, the dark side of that, as we know, especially with the Catholic Church, is like, yes, redemption is possible no matter what. So you can be the worst person and still sort of be a hypocrite and ask for forgiveness, which I think is like – yeah. If I'm shift to my looking at Oasis, how they grew up, they grew up a, in an abusive home where their father physically abused their mother in front of them, and and he would physically mm-hmm. abuse the two oldest boys, Paul and Noel, and um, so that was extremely traumatizing for them. And then for Liam, watching he watched all all of that, although he wasn't hit. But they went to a Catholic church, and then when their mother finally decided to leave their dad and divorce him the church would not let her kind of stay a member of the church and be divorced wow so i don't know if she switched churches i think she considers herself catholic still but the boys kind of as soon as they went through teenagehood were like fuck the church yeah yeah fuck religion and they're liam is interesting because he's kind of a a weird little spiritual being he'll kind of talk about the forces of the universe and universal gleam and like the energies of all that but noel is very much like I don't know if I'd call him an atheist, but he's certainly not. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't presume to know what Noel thinks, but he's certainly not religious in the traditional sense. And a lot of the lyrics in Oasis, especially like late Oasis, like there's um, there's this song called "Falling Down." I'm trying to. Um, there's a line that's like, uh, "If you won't save me, please don't waste my time." Um, and then he's off. So he, he's either talking about the kind of abandonment of God, or personifying someone as a type. Like there's a song. Mm. If I had a gun where he's like, um, you're the only God I've ever, I'll ever need. He's either talking about his wife or girlfriend. Some fans think he's talking about Liam, but it's like putting your faith in someone else or yourself. It's very like individual affirming. Mm. The themes are like, you can get your, like Noel in particular seems to really put a lot of like, I save myself kind of a thing. But anyway, it's just a very different, I think, relationship with religion where you two kind of feels Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's more positive, but it's, um, yeah. I don't know. Does does I haven't listened to it enough. Does Bono kind of like? It seems like he does mention occasionally, like there's religious metaphor, sort of like yes. angels and demons and stuff in his lyrics. There is, but like I mean, I I can't help but continue to think about the song until the end of the world, which mm. is a song that's like again, as I mentioned in the video, Bono does the sloppy kiss and crotch thrust uh, to the camera. (laughs) 
but this, the lyrics, the lyrics and, and like this adds to the lyrics are like, basically the narrative that's being espoused is like Judas's perspective as he's kissing Jesus before the betrayal, mm. but in a sexualized way, like, like in the garden, I was playing the tart. I kissed your lips and broke your heart. That's pretty, I didn't know that's pretty racy for you to, you know, and yet, you know, you might be surprised like you two is especially in the Octung baby era, pretty racy. Like um, Bono had a lot of characters doing during those tours that he played. And one was McFisto, who is like Mephisto. He's like the devil. Mm-hmm. And he wears these little devil horns, this gold lame suit and puts on like bright red lipstick and paints his face white and does like eyeliner and everything. And it does this accent. I think it's supposed to be an English accent. Um, it's very like soft vocal tone. It's like, I don't know. This character is, it's funny because like, I think on the one hand, people might looking from the outside in see it as like, oh, Bono is playing a gay devil. That's very <laughs> insulting. I mean, but yeah, no, totally. it's also Bono. Like I really fully, he also had a character called the fly who wears like all black shiny stuff and like giant like sunglasses. I think it's where the sunglasses thing started. These like giant yeah. round black sunglasses. And that character is supposed to be like, I think more masculine and, Honestly, Bono has never been like especially masculine for a man. He's very like, I don't know. But any, for especially for a straight man, I don't know if he's straight. I mean, he's been just been married to a woman for like forty yeah. years. But whatever, doesn't mean he's straight. He's definitely uh, made out with Noel, Liam. Which one did he make out with? <laughs> well, there's like a there's a picture of him with both. I think there's a oh, picture okay. of him like kissing Noel's cheek or very close, but it's very close to on the mouth. And Noel's been pictured with some some males oh. kissing and he's like I'm not really kissing he's like no oh, you've got your tongue in his mouth anyway yep. <laughs> and then um oh, but the one that I think we're thinking of is the one with Liam where like one of their tongues is out and like touching the other one's yep. tongue yep. something like that <laughs> no there's like several pictures of like full on making out like heavy yeah. French kissing there or whatever the kids call it yeah but I don't know I, I guess my main point to walk it back is like I and Bono's done a lot of work to like songs specifically supporting gay relationships. Every breaking wave, uh, one uh, work against you know AIDS stuff. So like he's not homophobic. So his characters are an aspect of him. That's what I want to say. So like this devil is an aspect of him. I guess full circle here is to say I don't think he takes the religious texts like verbatim. I think he's if he's seeing the devil in himself, if he's portraying Judas as a sexualized figure, like this is not a Christian rock band as we would call yeah, Christian rock. Totally. Bands. They are Christians. Three of them are Christians. Sure. But they're not a Christian rock band. And I think people make that mistake all of the time if they don't know the band. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's like getting into that. You had mentioned that. And then I think shines with you last time I mentioned her favorite album was Octoon baby. Um, and th- yeah, that album and Zeropa, um, are just really weird. And mm-hmm. um, and I remember you had mentioned the character, so I did look that up on YouTube and found a clip of him as McFisto. And like he would do stuff, I guess, like he had a phone on state. And as far as I could tell, they're real. And he would like call people. Like, yes, I- he made prank phone calls. Sorry to interrupt, but like I, when I totally legally downloaded things when I was a teacher, uh, I, would, I found clips of those phone calls 
And one is to the chancellor of Germany. He obviously only gets the secretary, but it's just, yeah. I bet you can find them like on YouTube nowadays, but it's, it's amazing. He would do it like every show, all these prank phone calls. Yeah. When you first said, or someone had also mentioned the character thing, I was like, what? Like, what is, like, a, but like, they're really good. Like, he really, he's a good actor and he gets in the character. Like, he was kind of like, yeah, the way he was moving as McFisto and that, and his voice and everything, I was like, he is like 100% going for it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, Nolan Liam barely move around on set. Like, they're, they put on this bravado of rock and roll, but I think they would be too embarrassed to do anything that would make them look silly. Bono is just such a – he's both self-conscious and unselfconscious. Like, he's mm-hmm. just not afraid to go, I think, explore something else, something new. Well, after a period of time of Bono doing crazy things on stage, like making out with the cameras, they started to <laughs> actually build in, like, a track for him to run around while he's singing. So when I saw them – Oh, like that heart thing? That's the tour I saw them on. So – this is nuts. Like, I wish I still had videos from this, but this was like 2005. So I don't even know. Uh, we didn't have cell phones that recorded videos very well back then. But the point is, is that, so he gets up on stage and there's a giant track that he can race around. Like people get to sit in the center of it too, if they buy the expensive tickets. But it's it's so big that there is like enough seating for over like probably 200 people in the middle of it. So you've got this just giant, just racetrack. So he gets on the stage and he sings and then he starts running around the track just over and over and over. I mean, half the time he's singing, half the time he's not. I honestly don't know how he could possibly have the breath control for that. But like even more, how does one have the energy for like a three hour show to keep running around that track? It's like putting a hamster wheel on stage. You're like, we need to let him run it off. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly that. Like, oh, my gosh. Oh, he's so precious. <laughs> Little hamster. Little hamster Bono. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, um, that was a great discussion. Um, I feel like we're getting on two hours. We should probably at least mention the fan fiction. Um, mm-hmm. We had, we both kind of looked into it. I don't think either of us really completed a work, so we're not going to, like, do a whole retro fanfic style, you know, digging into one fic. But um, were you reading U2 fic back in the day? I read a couple on a site I can no longer find. I was pretty young when I was reading it. So don't remember what they were about. They were probably about Bono and Edge's relationship because that seems to be what most of U2 fic is, is Bono, Edge, Slash. Yeah. Um, as this fic we are talking about. I think I was just delighted, you know, in that day and age, just to have anything else to consume about the band. Because, like, nowadays we've got everything all the time. But back then it was like if you could find that one precious little piece, it would be so special to you. Yeah. Did you – were you reading fan fiction before you discovered RPF and Banfic? Or was that your introduction into fan fiction? I was never like a big fanfic person as I've talked about on retro fanfic, but like I did have a few things I really liked, like the fic about a mostly anime, you know, when anime was like a new thing, I had some sailor moon fanfic. I printed out, I like found it in my bedroom the other day and printed this out, the sailor moon fanfic and probably some Gundam wing and stuff like that. But yeah, that probably would have been my first like RPF experience. Yeah. Not that I would have understood the difference in the day, but 
Yeah, it's interesting now we kind of have had fan fiction for enough time now that we can like we have categories and we like talk about and you guys have a whole episode about where you talk about what is RPF or what what is fan fiction actually I think mm-hmm. is the title of that. But yeah, when you're first discovering it, you don't know. You're just like, ooh, yeah, <laughs> this is cool. Yeah, we. I think we have we have two discussions on what is fan fiction. We have a, we also have a what is fan fiction part two, and RPF comes up in both because it does feel like that liminal space where you're like, what does it mean to write about real people versus fictional characters? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, fiction about which you know is a fictional version of a real person. Mm-hmm. And actually in in this one, well let me back up a little bit. So, uh I guess I was a little surprised at the my comparison with the Oasis fam. So the Oasis fandom has around 800 some stories. Fully half of them are in Chinese. Um and I kind of Whoa, what? <laughs> yeah, ha- like about half are in Chinese Mandarin. I mean there's a few little other numbers of fic that are in other languages, but if you uh, I think I did the the filter where I was like, if you filter English, it's about half. There's 460 some works right now in the English tag. Huh. And if you filter and I think you find the, the Chinese Mandarin tag, it's about 400. So there's a, there's a few of like minority of other languages, but it's crazy. Like for some reason, the Oasis fandom in particular. So I kind of went into the YouTube fandom. I was like, well, this is just RPF or fanfic. Like Asian cultures seem to love their bands and you know boy mm-hmm. bands and and that type of thing is big in japan korea True, like idol culture yeah idol culture yeah but you too there's only um i wrote 336 works in the in the u2 tag most you're right most of those are bono edge um but they're almost all in english so the 333 mm-hmm. out of 336 are in english so it's a smaller fandom in general but also whatever is going on i don't know maybe it's the I don't know if it's the incest thing with Oasis or what it is about Oasis that has attracted. Yeah, it is curious. It surprises me because I definitely think, you know, Oasis obviously broke up a while ago. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, But U2 is still going and they have a huge and very loyal fan community. Now, I think maybe the big crux of this is that most of those fans are not writing fan fiction, right? Yeah. Like, I guess maybe Oasis just feels like more fruitful ground for fan fiction. Yeah. And like perhaps because people really want to see Noel and Liam resolve their issues, like you mentioned before. And with you two, it's like they already have such a great relationship with each other. Like all you need to do is watch the band and see how cute they are. You don't really need to like add anything. And even in this fanfic we read, it's like they were basically just going through the history of U2, but just adding on if Edge and Bono had started yeah. a sexual relationship like at a younger age, at a young age. Yeah. It's almost like whatever you add into the the behind the scenes, it doesn't really change like the quote unquote canon of U2. Because mm-hmm. even like now, like I was watching um, some more recent live performances, either that Tiny Desk concert or there was some like, I think it was a BBC Radio 2 studio performance where I think it's just Bono and Edge. I don't remember if Larry and Adam were there, but it's like they're doing one of their songs of surrender versions mm-hmm. of an old standard. And um, 
I don't, it's like Bonnet was like getting close to Edge and like staring at him and like singing at him and like oh, yeah. touching. And you're like, uh, uh, this is no, it needs nothing else. Whereas like mm-hmm. with Liam and Noel, mm-hmm. with Liam and Noel, there's a lot of weird stage antics that like, and it's an, in, it's a very intense, emotionally intense relationship. That much is you can use that. It's just adding kind of a, you know, a sexual element to that. But the, the warmth and affection that like Edge and Bono have. For each other is like, yeah, you don't need to do anything. They already act like a married yeah. couple, like an old married couple that is like, it's all there. It's such a good point that I just never even thought about before because like in my mind, like a preliminary thought was like, oh, this is great territory for fanfic because when you watch their videos, you can see that relationship in action. So of course that's great territory. But like you just said, yeah, there's there's nothing, there's not much you can add to that. Like, it is there. (laughs) Yeah. And that's really interesting. And I don't know how, I mean, like in America, you two made it in a way and have have still made it in a way that Oasis never did. But Oasis was huge, uh, of course, in Europe, and they are huge in South America, and they were huge in Asia. Like, when they would go to Japan, it was like a pandemonium kind of Beatles level. Mm -hmm. And, And they also were kind of at that sort of Brit pop in that scene with Blur yes. and all those guys were like young, cute, kind of like set. Like, I mean, Liam is one of the most attractive people probably in the world to me, at least young, like 25 year old Liam. It's just like, Jesus Christ. Um, uh, I don't know if maybe you two is just um, not as like, uh, they are sexy, but they're not as like, um, what am I trying to say? Like come hither type of like, oh, yeah. come fuck, the come fuck me energy that Liam has. Maybe. I don't know. I think so. I mean, it's also like a, I think it's a different generation of, of like music and performance too. Yeah. Right. Like, it's like you two. Yeah. They're like first album came out in 1980. So like they're doing a little bit, it's a little bit punk. It's, it's almost post-punk. And yeah, they're cute, but like they're literally like between 18 and 20 years old when that first album comes out. Yeah. Um, And I, I think like something that Oasis has is first of all, they, they were more towards the nineties and they're at the height of their mm-hmm. popularity. And that was definitely like, it was like kind of like grunge post grunge. Like you mentioned, like the whole Brit pop scene with blur, like things were definitely supposed to be edgier. Like that's just yeah. how we felt in the nineties. Like nineties was edgy. That's how people's attitudes were like about music, about everything, you know? Yeah. I didn't look the dates on the YouTube fic, but a lot of the Oasis fic wasn't being written until like 2017, 2019, like hmm. oddly. And I think part of that was in 2016, there was a big documentary called Supersonic that kind of like uh-huh. definitely laid the ground for like um, the whole heart of the band in the way that Bono and Edge are the heart of YouTube. Liam and Noel are like, some Oasis fans would not agree with me, but you don't really need anyone else. Like the whole thing mm-hmm. of Oasis is almost like an, an outward projection of that, that weird dynamic between the two of them. And the documentary, I think did a good job of portraying that and that angst. And yeah, there's just a lot of like unfinished business, I think with Oasis. Whereas, whereas like, cause like right now, so blur just announced a reunion Yeah, yeah. and it was funny to me. And blur did another reunion show. I think back in like 20, or is it 2005 or 2015? One of those two. They've done it like once before where they got together. So in the kind of British music world right now, a lot of people are talking about the Blur reunion. They're going to do a couple of huge shows at Wembley and they're doing a new album. 
But it was funny to me because in this, there was this Sun article, a tabloid article that was like blur reunion. And then in the headline, they were like, Damon Hall Barn comments on potential Oasis reunion. So even in the blur reunion, like people are talking about the potential, which is not anything official. People just wow. want an Oasis reunion so bad. Um, so that was interesting. Um, anyway, that's getting away from this, the fanfic. Um, but yeah, there's, so there's 300 some works in the, in the fandom. Um, and I think both of us had like kind of heard of this author or it's been mentioned a couple times. So like a Madonna is the author. We won't dig into it too much just cause I haven't, uh, read it <laughs> at all. But, um, yeah. What was your kind of first impression or can you tell us the premise of the fic? Well, I mean, this this is the weirdest premise. So at first I was like, what? What is going on? The author decides that Bono and Edge, and this isn't apparent quite at first, which is I think was a little confused, but eventually like it becomes clear. Bono and Edge are like very shortly it becomes clear. Bono and Edge currently have a sexual relationship. However, they have been exposed to fan fiction. They're laughing a little bit about it. And now they are writing fanfic chapters and sending them to each other as if they had gotten into a relationship much earlier in their lives, like when they were like 16. Yeah. And I hope that made sense because like it is the craziest premise. However, you kind of don't even need to know that premise except for like the like sort of short paragraph intros that they will write to each other like, Dearest Edge, I've written I've written this chapter for you. I'm thinking about you, blah, blah, blah. I'm in Miami right now or something, you know? Like, not that important. Or I wish we'd done this at that time, blah, blah, blah. The chapter itself is just going to be U2's history. This author had a really in-depth understanding of their band history, like, including, like, how they met Paul McGinnis, like, what the dynamics of the band were before they became U2, like, when they were really young teenagers, um, except that they have added in interpretations, like obviously dialogue that they weren't there, they couldn't have known. And also the sexual relationship between Bono and Edge, which starts pretty early on in the first chapter there. Though Bono is respectful enough that once they don't actually have sex until after both Bono and Edge have turned 18. Yeah. Because Edge is like uh, a little bit younger than Bono, like by, I, I want to say like eight months or something. No, wait, maybe only six. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Cause like, if you would have told me that premise, I'd be like, what? That sounds corny. But like, mm-hmm. I think the, the author's a good enough writer to handle it. But yeah, the premise is like crazy. Cause it's like such a, I mean, RPF is so meta on the surface anyway, isn't like, these are real people. So we're going to write fiction as if they were fictional characters and we'll write this fictional scenario of these fictional versions. So that's already like kind of a level of like meta. And then to write those fictional characters in the fictional story, writing themselves as fictional versions of themselves, a, a level deeper than that is like, kind of wild it's like it's almost like i have to remind myself a couple times like oh yeah the author's not pausing this as if within the story itself this happened this is their fantasy of what they wish like if they could have gotten together earlier right what it would be um and yeah the writing is really solid i thought and um yeah it's just very 
sweet again because it's like it's Bono and Edge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like a real quote in Bono's book, Actual Book Surrender, is like he says something. He's talking about the kind of the yin yang of him and Edge pretty early on, and he's like, um, "I'm a maximalist, and Edge is a minimalist." And then he's like, "The Edge is the light in the paint," which is like this beautiful poetic thing. To, and you're like Jesus, like he really said that, but it's like mm-hmm. so. This is it's like this isn't much of a stretch. It's like, oh, I could sort of they're so almost like sappy the way they talk to each other and about each other, but it's like, oh, they really kinda do, like in real life. Oh yeah. No, I mean it like it feels very real to me. I mean, especially because like, yeah, this author isn't like that focused on them like ripping their clothes off of each other or anything. I mean, there are sexual scenes and makeout scenes and they're explicit enough that I would probably rate this R, but they're more focused on the relationship and like the love and also the history of the band. And uh, I also wanted to correct myself. I did my math backwards. Edge and Bono are like a year and three months apart. Oh, okay. Um, in age. Yeah. Just correcting my math there. So that's why there's like this long waiting period where like Bono turns 18 and he's just like waiting for Edge to turn 18 so they can have sex. <laughs> um, what a gentleman. I know. And the other fascinating thing about this fic, the chapters aren't directly alternating, but like every so often it's Edge's voice and every so often it's Bono's voice. And it's written you. So like only when addressing Edge or Bono, depending on who's writing, right? So like, Mm -hmm. I find that really fascinating, right? So like, if Bono is talking, he'll talk about other people like Adam did this and Larry did this and you did this and you means Edge. That's also kind of strange, right? I guess you consider it epistolary, like they're writing letters to each other, but the, and, the, and then there's letters right. within letters. So it's all, and actually I should know this as someone who uh, claims to be a writer. So mm-hmm. when you, the difference between first person and second person, he does write as in uh, talking about, I was doing this and you were doing this. So does right. that make it, is it still first person or is this, no, it's like now I'm confusing the difference between sight person sight. But in any case, yeah, it is a it is a rare and kind of strange point of view because most stories people don't write I and you. It's um either he and she as a third person is usually yeah. how it works. So that was like right off the bat, I was like, Oh, this is a little different. Mostly what we're familiar with in terms of the use of the second person and at like writing is like a choose your own adventure story where you as the reader are supposed to be, you know, the author is saying, you have to do this now, right? And so, or, or you do this and you do that. And you as the reader are the you. Okay. But this, in this case, it's not. The you is either Bono or Edge, depending on whether Bono or Edge is writing. Sorry if that sounds confusing, but, you know, yeah. one way or the other. So I, I don't actually know. Like technically using you as a use of the second person, but it's just, it's in a way I've never really seen it at all. So. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would guess it would be still first person because he is saying like. Yeah, I guess you're right. The the author or the writer is I, but he's just talking about you and you were doing this and you looked like this and I said this and you said that. Mm -hmm. So it's confusing. I think it's still first person. Anyway. No, I think you're right. Yeah. Because it is, it is like usually in a first person you think about that and it's like, and I was here and here's where my story starts and I, 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 I. But the fact that they're so wrapped up and focused on the other person and it's like, mm-hmm. it's a letter writing thing. Like Bono is saying, I was doing this, but he's writing to the edge. So in that way, um, yeah, I don't know. He's addressing that second person, I guess, a lot. So the mm-hmm. you pronoun is used like, 
almost every sentence. Yeah, but it, it is also just like curious because there is a preface which makes more sense. It's like as if it's a letter, like I'm writing to you. And then when the fan fiction starts, because again, it's Botto writing fan fiction and Edge writing fan fiction of themselves, then it becomes more fictionalized. And that's where it, yeah, it kind of comes becomes weird, I guess. I mean, not yeah. in a bad way. I actually like it. It's just like I so unexpected. I know when I yeah when I read the premise I was like mm, I don't know about this but yeah it's really it's really sweet and it's really unique and um so I know that this like I said I didn't finish it it's one hundred sixty thousand words so I'm I'm still in the middle of it but um it also has a sequel which I know that like Madonna is working on I believe right now and I don't think it's finished but yeah a very prolific author and it does seem like. Like a Madonna is a big author in that fandom. She's got a lot of works. There's also uh, a couple of other. Let me just go to the page here. And Space Monkey was another one that I encountered that that publishes a lot. And lo- like, there's a lot of long fix in this fandom. Like, I usually like to filter by bookmarks. And so when I filter by bookmarks, this fic by Space Monkey, which is called uh, The Scientist or How Edge Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bono. <laughs> that one is 88,000 words right there, which is funny because in the Oasis fandom, most of the stuff is pretty short. Like I went over there and I was like, well, how many out of 400 some works in English, how many 100,000 works do we have? We actually don't have, not in English, we, we actually don't have any. The, the one that is over 100,000 is the Chinese translation of a, of a work I did. And because I think Chinese characters just tend to run longer because my the one mm. I did is... Uh, I think it's right at about 80,000 words. And in Chinese, it's like 130,000 words. So that just happens to put it over. But we don't don't have a lot of long fix in the Oasis fandom. So I was like, oh, it's kind of cool that in the the YouTube fandom, they seem to have like a lot of long, like 30,000 word plus fix, which is cool. Oh my gosh. But like at the same time, most YouTube fix that are good are extremely long, at least from the research I've done. Yeah. Which, like, it's it's always kind of a problem as someone who runs a fan fiction book club podcast. I'm like, I can't make people read entire novels. Like, <laughs> I know. I know. I think I sent that list to you, and then I hadn't really looked at mm-hmm. it. And then I looked back, and I was like, oh, my gosh, all of these are 100,000 words. Yeah, yeah. I was like, maybe we should reassess and pick something shorter, but – um, yeah, as a, as a reader in the fandom, it's gotta be nice. Like, Ooh, you kind of got like several like novel length fix to choose from, which is cool. Cause I, I, I like reading, I don't know, I guess I like a mix, but it is nice to be able to settle down with a long fic and enjoy it. I, you know, I kind of have like, I guess that's true. And I've actually been really enjoying reading this one, but honestly, I normally wouldn't start reading a long fic on my own. Cause I would just be like, Oh, that's such a commitment. Like, I don't know if I want to do that. Yeah, I feel like I have to be in the right mood because sometimes I want to just hop on. I'm like, I want a, a thousand words on some like emotionally mm-hmm. tense moment between Liam and all. Like, that's what I want right now. Totally. Yeah. Cause you can get that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a hit of a drug. <laughs> I feel you though. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, well, yeah, we'll see, we'll see if I get a chance to interview somebody from that fandom, but, um, it's kind of funny how I feel like there's been a lot of crossover between the people I've met in Oasis and the people that I've met in the, the YouTube fandom. And it's, it's been sweet. Um, okay. Well, I think, is there anything kind of, we didn't touch on that you wanted to dig into at all? Well, I, I guess I will say there's something I really appreciate about this fic because like, just as like an overview, 
I don't know why, but like there's this idea in my mind because I know how strong Bono and Allie's marriage has been for like the last 40 years. Oh, good point. So when I like talk about like Slash Bean, Bono and Edge, I'm always like, oh, but is that like, are they going to leave Allie out of that? Like, especially because I don't want like the woman to be erased from the story, but also because like, I don't know, she's an incredible person as well in her own right, who doesn't get enough attention. She's also like an incredible activist and general human being. But what this fic does very well is makes it clear that Botto continues to have a relationship with Allie and with Edge, and they are both okay with it. And I was just like, that is, like, I just loved that. Like, especially, like, I don't think he got this far, but in chapter 15, he goes to the zoo with Allie, and he's, like, just talking about how in love he is with her, blah, 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 blah. It's mostly focused on Bono Edge. But then, like, they bring it back around, like, let's just make it clear that this is, like, a polyamorous thing and like everyone's totally cool with it. And I thought that was really sweet. Yeah. I think anything you learn about Bono is like, he's always just, he's kind of almost to a fault, not to a fault, but like there was a, um, an interview with him and Allie and she said something about how she doesn't like to be put up on a pedestal and she wants to definitely be seen as a, a partner. And I think sometimes I would guess that Bono maybe struggles with that a little bit because he talks about her as mm-hmm. if she's like this saving grace and angel. And we didn't really mention he met Allie the same week that he met the band. So it's like yeah. in the same week, he sort of had all the pieces of this life that he was going to build. And um, yeah, and they've been together all this time. And so she's definitely an, sort of an essential part of their story and um yeah, that is cool. I'm kind of trying to do a similar thing, like in in my fic, um, as in like not get, like Debbie is Liam's partner, mm-hmm. and sh- and she's kind of like been this force of um, she's his manager as well, and she's been instrumental in helping him with his kind of recent musical comeback. So it's like I can't just kick Debbie out. So the challenge of like writing her is integral into that this other romance. And has been fun, but um, yeah, yeah, I thought that was cool too. I was like, yeah, and I think even it's like on a meta level, the author addresses it. There's some line where Bono's like, "How do the fan fiction writers deal with our wives? Do they just write them <laughs> out?" Like, she sort of meta meta yeah, yeah. addresses that. So I did think that was cool as well. Yeah, I, I definitely think this author just has like a really good grasp on like I don't know, at least everything I want in a YouTube fan fiction. I'm not gonna lie, like. Not that I'm not looking for Bono Edge Slash. Not that I am. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's just cute. Like, they they clearly love the band and, like, the people around the band. And I think that's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. As an Oasis fan, I'm always like, if only they could get out of their own way, they could have maybe... I don't know if anyone... That's, that's kind of selling you too short. But it's like, that is the dream where the band that you love can stay together and be nice mm-hmm. to each other yep. and still keep making music all these years. So it's like an amazing thing that they've accomplished. Like they don't seem, I'm sure they have their squabbles and I'm sure it's like a personality like Bono has got to, sometimes you probably, even someone like Edge maybe needs his space. Um, mm-hmm. But he does, it's like he does when Edge is sitting with Bono or doing an interview with him. He seems genuinely so warm and affectionate toward Bono. He doesn't seem annoyed at all, which you're like, 
Bono, he's kind of got that puppy energy. Oh, yeah. Which you could feel like could be, could overwhelm people and people could get sick of it and be like, stop talking. But Edge doesn't seem to have that energy about him, which is cool. Well, yeah, you have to imagine that in a way, like these are innate personality qualities, but they're also like these are people who became a band when they were teens, quickly became mm-hmm. famous by, you know, by 20, 18 to 20 years old. Oh. Um, they had to evolve together, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Figure out how to be around each other and be famous and have marriages and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. oh, it's so crazy. It's cool, though. Um, all right. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Okay, yes. I always call them rapid fire, but they always end up lasting like a half an hour. (laughs) So no worries. You can answer as short or as long as you want. Um, So the first one is always a silly question. And since there's four, I've augmented this form a little bit. But the old old fuck, marry, kill. But let's do uh, fuck, marry, torrid, ongoing, angsty affair Mm -hmm. or, or kill. Or maybe we should instead of kill, dude, like dismiss politely if you want. Yeah, that sounds that sounds better <laughs> than murder. Well, let's do um, fuck, marry, torrid affair, dismiss politely with the members of you two. Where would you, where are you at? Oh man, um, okay. What's the difference between fuck and torrid affair? Like, is one like <laughs> a one time or yes. like okay? So you only yeah, get to fuck do it is one a time. one time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Larry one time. Yeah. The fuck. <laughs> uh, I would definitely marry Edge and Torrid Affair with Botto. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Adam Clayton, you are still excellent, but you are politely dismissed. <laughs> I love that. Actually, Botto's perfect for the ongoing angsty right? Torrid Affair because th- those type of things you think like, oh, you, it's a love-hate relationship and he's such a he's such a lot of a person. And yeah, Edges would be like the perfect husband. I know, I know. Like, I like briefly debated marrying Bono because I was like, I love him so much. But then I was like, he's he is a lot, right? Like, Edge would just, you're right. Edge would just be like such a patient, like pleasant partner, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's what makes Allie remarkable, probably, because she can, she can carry that ego around with her and uh, still enjoy Bono and get Mm -hmm. the best out of him and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I've got a lot of respect for her. <laughs> yeah, she's cool. All right, question two. What is your Desert Island record? And you could stick with a U2 record or you could do something else, but this is one album that let's say you're on an island for three months and you've got food and water, but you also only get one album to listen to. Okay, okay. Well, it's definitely going to be a U2 album. It's just, oh, it's so hard to pick the best one. Uh, probably War. Yeah, just War has such a wonderful collection of different types of songs while still being kind of in that early, like, punk phase. I'm not going to say it's their best album, but I feel like it has enough variety where you've got, like, slow songs that are emotional, but you've also got, like, really, like, in-your-face direct songs that you want to, like, scream along with. So, yeah, be War. Yeah, that was probably for me, like I was more familiar with kind of the mid-career, like Joshua Tree to their 2000s work. So that was all fairly familiar. 
Um, and I did. I hadn't listened to Acting Baby or Zeropa before, so those were kind of wild. But I was mm-hmm. most pleasantly surprised, I think, by War because I had heard Sunday Bloody Sunday before, but I hadn't really listened to it. And um, mm-hmm. so that they're yeah, they're so young and kind of it's just a different kind of more raw sound that I was like, that is so cool. Like I loved listening to that album. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's, if you listen to boy, boy is like quite similar, but it feels like in war, they've like really evolved their sound. Like they incorporate other instruments like violins and tambourines. Like they just like really like, yeah, they knew what they were doing. Whereas October, their second album is, um, kind of a mess like i still like it i still like it but bono's lyric book was stolen right actually here in portland and returned to him here in portland like i don't know i want to say a couple decades ago which is awesome but anyway he got it back because i had heard it he got it back like 20 years later like at least 20 years later yeah no i think it happened when i was a teenager so like yeah i don't know the exact timeline but it's crazy but yeah, that's why October is kind of like a little bit messy is because Bonnet was just like making things up. <laughs> yeah, because I still had to get the album done. So that it seems like that happened a few times where their schedules of getting the album done mm-hmm. like kind of made recording rushed. And But that one, I had heard that story. That's crazy. I didn't know he got it back. Yeah, no, it actually, again, happened when, yeah, when I was a teen and I was still into them and I was just like, what in my city? <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they would ever... I mean, who knows what you two will do next, but that would be kind of neat if they would go back and like do October part two and like do it with the lyrics that Bono had actually written down. That'd be kind of, or just get a second crack at it. For sure. Actually, it's very interesting because I don't think Songs of Surrender has any tracks off October. I I can't remember for sure, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't stand out in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Question three. Give me your top five YouTube tracks of all time. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, it's like, that's literally impossible, but (laughs) I did write down some so that I could be prepared for this. Here's the thing. I have a list that I've been refining for like about a year now of all the YouTube tracks I want to really, you know, like do, I really want to learn how to sing or like are really important to me. There's 80 songs in that list, (laughs) like a little over actually, but I think I decided to like pick favorites based on kind of the, like sometimes the videos, the videos are really well done for a lot of these songs, especially the Anton Corbin, Corbin. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. I think. Yeah. I've seen that spelled out and it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Those videos are just incredible. So Red Hill Mining Town is absolutely one of my favorites. Especially because in the video, like, Bato's frenetic energy is just, like, permeating the whole thing. Like, they're pretending to be, like, miners in a coal mine, like, the canaries in a cage. And Bato's just, like, like dressed up like he's dripping in sweat. Or he is dripping in sweat. I don't know. 
uh, <laughs> wearing a tank top and just like hanging from these chains at like I don't know it's just it's incredible um other song is bad Especially because of the lyric, I'm wide awake, I'm not sleeping. And the way that Bono sings is like... It's like, it's so good. It's so intense and emotional. Then uh, Lemon... Mostly because the video is so damn good. It's also a great song because Bado just does this incredible performance, and then the video itself is a reference to that first like man walking video. Except they, uh, you know, like oh, the yeah, early yeah. cinemas, yeah, like early, like one of the first you know videos ever done. Except they do man walking, they do uh, man playing cymbal, man taking off sunglasses, like uh, it's. It's good. It's great. It is really cool. Yeah, I remember you you sent me that one. I was like, mm-hmm. and that was before I had really t- dug into my research. I was like, what? This is you too? Like I'd never I seen know. the weird stuff before. It's one of the weird ones, but honestly, like Bono does a falsetto through like much of the vocals, but then he does yeah. this like this like shift back. He's also doing the Mike Fisto character in the video, so like I feel like that clarifies it when you see him doing that. Mm. That makes more sense. Yeah. But like then he's just, you know, he does this falsetto that he like just dropped back into his normal range. And I feel like that transition is just like, I don't know, it just sounds really incredible. And Edge is doing one of these really interesting, like resonant guitar things um, that he does because like he's an incredibly talented musician. But I feel like some of his best work is done when he just like finds a new sound through an effects pedal. And he's really, really good at that. So, yeah. yeah. And let's see. I have also recently, this might not be like technically a top five, but I have recently become obsessed with Every Breaking Wave because that's a relatively new song. <gasps> that is one of my favorites. It's so good. Every Breaking Wave on the shore the next one there'll be one more and every gambler knows that to lose is what you're really there for summer house fears 
I just feel like um, I haven't been as enamored with U2's stuff. Like, they've done great things in the last decade, but a lot of it, except for like, like, like the Miracle of Joey Ramone is also really good. Like, there's a couple songs that have really resonated with me, and this was one of them. And I felt like I, I felt like it was, it felt like a turning point to me, being like, yeah, it was 2014, but they were like this is a song that feels like we're getting somewhere now, you know? Um, Cause like I No Line on the horizon is a good album, but it didn't stick with me. Like some of their older stuff did. So um, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful song. Yeah. It's a gorgeous song. Um, and then like, I could list off all of the, the absolute, like everyone knows them and their favorites, but because they are good and there's a reason that they're popular, but I think I'm going to try to like do the, like a little bit more of the deep dives. Um, okay. Stay far in parentheses, far away. So close. So long as well. Stay far away. So close. also has an incredible video where the band plays guardian angels to like a younger band um, oh. and it's really cute but that's the song that's like um i don't know just i i appreciate the narrative quality of it and its simplicity and it's like it there's a couple lyrics it's like you stumble out of a hole in the ground a vampire or a victim it depends on who's around and I, I just love that. And there's like a part where it's like, you, you uh, there's something about going to the convenience store for like, you, you stop in for a pack of cigarettes. You don't smoke, don't even want to. Hey, now check your change. And I just I like, that. another line is dressed up like a car crash. Like I just like, so, so many of the lyrics are just like, what? And it's telling a story 
and you don't quite know what the story is, but it's evocative. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, those are great. Yeah, you kind of mentioned the all the hits that everybody knows. Um, I'd heard of the Joshua Tree, but like, yeah, when I opened the track listing to that one, I was like, get the fuck out of here. It's like, mm-hmm. um, what the first? It's like, uh, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Oh um, my god! With, yeah. with or with with or without you, and um, where the streets have no name. Mm-hmm. Those are like the first. I might have got them out of order, but those are the first three tracks. I was like, get the fuck out of here! Like, those are like the career yes. top hits on one album first three tracks that's crazy i know i know and like like i'm not gonna lie like those songs are fucking amazing i just like i didn't want to i feel like people know those songs you know yeah um so i was trying to like you know be a little bit more exploratory but like you just can't knock how like that album just blows you away like yeah yeah and that like i said that was the second album i heard from them after i got that that you can't leave behind my dad was like listen to this and i was like i was obsessed that was the album that was just like whoa mind blown you know and like of course beautiful day is is still just like such a fun song to listen to and especially the music video where he's like playing around at the airport it's so cute but yeah like joshua tree just like i don't know there's something like amazingly full about the sound it just knocks you over every time Yeah, in general, their sound is like that. I know they obviously have in the studio, they can put all kinds of instruments, but it is amazing Uh even live and even with help. It's like what the four of them put out volume-wise is pretty insane. Oh, no, yeah. It's like you only have one guitar player? What are you talking about? (laughs) Well, Edge Um, has really figured out how to use effects pedals to his best possible usage. Like, again, he's talented just through his sheer like ability to play. But I think mostly yeah. it's his songwriting and his ability to use those effects. It's just killer. He was on, uh, he and Bono were on, actually all four of them, I think, were on the couch at, a, I think it was a Jimmy Fallon show. But they play um, Ordinary Love. Birds fly high in the summer sky. just at first it's just edge on an acoustic i think he does have adam there on an on an acoustic bass and i think larry's maybe like playing a little acoustic box something he's hitting and they played uh yeah ordinary love and it was like so good and it just didn't need but then sometimes especially on the songs of surrender there were a few versions where i was like oh i missed the big sound but yeah i don't know what i was trying to say but that was so good I think that's very, very real. And like, I, 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 I felt the same way too. I was like, I appreciate it, but like, yeah, there's something about all of those like effects that are just, I don't know. 
they like it like makes the sound in a way, you know. Yeah, and some of them are so distinctive, like on streets have no name when the, the that sort of fade in mm-hmm. uh, arpeggio that the edges sing, just that little like. repetitive little riff he does over and over again it's like god it's like three notes or two whatever that is yeah um and it's just like so distinctive you're like oh you're this is the song yeah. I know the song it's coming it's only like yeah it's it's only probably four notes but it's it, it's the way that it resonates with the i don't yeah. even know what effect he's using but i would love to know <laughs> yeah so i've heard like adjectives like reverb soaked or what was it? Not jangly. I don't know. Somebody had mm-hmm. some adjectives that are like, oh, yeah, that's a lot of, a lot of reverb, but resonance. Uh, yeah. He does have something distinctive that you can be like, ooh, that's the edge. Like, do the edge thing, as oh, yeah. I would say. Um, all right. This one, I'm going slow here. It's still my fourth question. Um, this one is kind it will be a, a little bit of a hard one. Um, this came from my, my boyfriend and his friends were talking about music at one point, and our friend had this joke where he calls this thing the boat and it's the hypothetical boat that you put all the things you hate and you can push it out to sea. But for instance, he does not like Johnny cash. So he will be like, huh. put Johnny cash on the boat and he'll be like, I don't need Johnny cash. Johnny cash can go on the boat. So hmm. I'm going to ask you to put one U2 album on the boat oh, that, no. you would, that you would put on the boat and push out to sea and you would never hear it again. <laughs> Oh, that's so sad because I don't really want to put any of them on the boat. But um, okay, hold on. It would probably. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not. I'm not being the best U2 fan because I can't usually remember the difference between Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. Yeah, and it's one of. It's definitely one of those. Um, it's just the one that doesn't have the miracle of Joey Ramone. So I'm gonna figure that out really quick. Yeah, Google it. I can't remember either. <laughs> oh no! I just realized that like songs of experience actually has a lot of songs I like on it. Darn it! This is hard. <laughs> this is hard. Okay, but uh, no, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've got to do songs of surrender because it's just a reprisal. I mean, not that the reprisals aren't incredible, but like by pushing it out to sea. Yeah. I would still have the originals and I could still imagine the reprisals. Right. 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 Yep. Okay. Yep. There we go. I, I would say that's a wise choice. It's great now, but yeah, since it's a re-recording or reimagining, mm-hmm. it's still a studio album. I support your decision. I know. I feel bad saying that because like they just came out with it and I understand that it's like important for them to do all the reprisals, but like. You can't, you can't get rid of the originals. No, though. you just can't. Yeah. You had to do it. It's all right. All right. <laughs> okay. This is my silly hypothetical. All right. You wake up in Dublin after a U2 concert. Uh, you look at your watch. It's 2 a.m. You have no memory of the past few hours. You seem to be okay. However, to your horror, 
you realize you have a body in the trunk of your car. <laughs> sorry, this is, sorry, this is dark. To your delight and surprise, however, you also seem to have the personal cell phone numbers of all four members of you two in your phone. Mm. So who are you going to call to help you dispose of this dead body? <gasps> Which you two member or like anyone I could call? Uh, let's go with you two members. Okay. I don't know why. That's yeah. probably not the best people to call, but which of them are going to help you discreetly dispose of this body? <laughs> Apparently, I don't even remember meeting them. So that seems like a rude thing to ask, but. <laughs> That's true. But they remember you. They'll be friendly. All mm-hmm. of them will be glad to hear from you. I don't know. I'm sorry, you two members, because I don't know you personally. And you'll probably never listen to this anyway. But Adam Clayton just seems like the person who could help you dispose of a body. Like, yeah, he just seems capable, you know, and like, like on the ball, like we remain calm in any situation. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like Bono would be a disaster. He would be like, oh, yeah. freaking he'd, out. he'd be way too loud. He would way too loud. Yeah. <laughs> it was the first thing I thought, too. I was like, Bono would be way too loud. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure about Larry. Edge might be all right, but I think I would ask something about Adam also sort of commands capability somehow. I feel like Edge and Larry would both cry, and I'd probably be crying (laughs) too. And that is totally fine. But like, yeah, I just feel like Adam would have his shit together like all the time. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Um, This is still a little bit silly. If you had to guess the love languages of Bono and the Edge, what do you think they would be? Hmm. And I can look up love. I can't remember all the love languages. Let's see. Yeah. There's five of them. I feel like there's acts of service, physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, and receiving gifts. Hmm. Interesting. I feel like Bono would probably be like, like I'm, debating between the physical touch thing because I know he's like a very physical person but like words of affirmation probably have to take over on that right you know I bet they could be a little bit of both those were the two that stuck out for me for Bono as well for sure yeah it'd be a combination yeah um with Edge I'm like I feel like Edge would definitely be like like something in the lines of like respecting boundaries in a way like but also like of those available like quality time but i imagine that quality time would be more like we're just gonna sit and and both read our books together you know (laughs) like less like i don't need that much attention i just need you to like be by my side sort of thing Mm -hmm. yeah that's my guess i like that too um all right what's a um next question question seven what's a more recent band or album besides you two well i guess you could say you two uh that you've been enjoying Oh, okay. Well, I'll try to pick something besides you two more recent. Um, You know, it's weird. Like, I used to be the person who was always like, I have just found the newest music. But actually, I just went to a concert because my friend invited me, and I had no idea who this person was, but it was Leith Ross. Apparently, they only just, their first album came out in, like, 2020. Um, But they had... It apparently got famous on TikTok. Apparently, that's just how the kids are doing it nowadays. Yeah. But uh, though they were really talented, like they had a lot of very sad, sweet songs, but they also had um, a f- five people supporting them 
um, as support musicians in their band. So they played guitar and sang and they had someone who played upright bass, that they had someone on keys, someone who alternated between banjo and guitar and mandolin. Awesome. Like, and the whole band together, I know they're not, they don't usually play as a band, but like these people together had this incredible full sound. So I guess I haven't listened to them that much, but I feel like I would recommend Leith Ross and, um, Oh, I have the band camp for the supporting bassist because they also played one of their songs and it was really good and reminded me of like Slint and it was very mm. mathy. Yeah, I'll have you send me those names so I can spell out so we can link them. Yeah, so Her Dilemma is the name of the bassist's band um, or their solo, or solo project, I'm not sure, but they were really good, so yeah. Cool, oh, that sounds awesome. Okay, turning to fan fiction, um, do you have any recent bookmarks or kind of favorites, either of you two or RPF or, or anything you've been um, enjoying recently as far as fan fiction goes? Well, honestly, um, I haven't been reading much other than other than this fan fiction, which yeah. um, that we read for this, which I really do enjoy and, and want to keep reading. I'm trying to remember another fanfic I read recently that I liked, but there's so many. I know. Um, we also, we did read, um, a Chronicles of Narnia fan fiction for Retro Fanfic Retrospective that I really liked and it was really short. So I feel like it'd be an easy read for anyone who's interested. I just have to remember the title. Yeah, no, that's okay. And we can find that in link it and I'll link the retro episode as well. Yeah, actually it was funny. Like when I first as a kid discovered the C.S. Lewis books. I'm sure you guys kind of talk about the religion thing, mm-hmm. but I, I had like no idea it was kind of an overtly Christian or overtly Christian themes. And like, I remember when I read that, I was like, oh man, like the line is Jesus. What? <laughs> like it kind of oh, ruined I me know. a little bit. I feel the same too. But like, I don't know. That's what I like about this Narnia fanfic. It's called Cry for Yesterday. Um I know. I feel like they sort of address the religion thing, like not fully, but they're like, clearly they're like talking about it, but like making it so that it's not supposed to be as religious, I guess. And especially what they do is address the whole thing where like Susan gets writ out, written out of Narnia yeah. because she gets interested in clothes and boys or whatever. <laughs> they, they give a much better reason for it. Um, so yeah, I like that. That's awesome. Yeah, I always felt bad. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> like, they really kind of like just kicked Susan out of Narnia. Like, mm-hmm. damn. <laughs> um, okay, we're getting close to the end here. I wasn't quite sure how to – because normally I have these last one or two questions are a little – trying to pull some ideas together. But So I was like, well, we talked about fan fiction a lot, but we also talked about music. So I guess I wrote out the question is when you think about fan fiction, how do you see that? And does it relate at all to like – music and art does fan fiction enhance your enjoyment of music at all or do those things stay quite separate mm. like i guess maybe thinking specifically about youtube fanfic or bandfic because for me I, I think part of the reason why i love oasis is the story of the brothers whether that's in a specific fan fiction or just the narrative of them as people like something about that makes me enjoy the music more because i could kind of feel like i'm understanding the lyrics in a way that fits into like a narrative and that just like i think that mm maybe fuels my obsession a little bit. Um, so I don't know, I guess with story or you can think about fan fiction or not, but like how you enjoy music, um, does that overlap at all with fan fiction and, and kind of storytelling, I guess? 
That's such an interesting question. <laughs> and and like, no, I think it's so fruitful because I don't know if I've fully thought this through before, but like, you know, I mean, you hear a band that you love and the lyrics really resonate with you. But there's also, obviously it can't, it's not just the lyrics that are resonating with you, it's the music as well. But you, I think, at least for me, can't help but imagine if you've never seen the members of the band, like what are these people like uh, that are writing this thing that is so strong, that are communicating this thing that's like so strong to me. And I think that's what fan fiction is doing as well. It's saying like, this resonated with me and I want to know the band members better. So I actually think it, I probably have a very strong negative reaction to someone who wrote or to it, not to someone, to a story that wrote the band members in a way that like, did not seem yeah. accurate to me. Right. And then when they write them in a way that seems like good, then I'm not sure if it adds anything to my fandom, but like, I certainly think that it adds something like it's, it makes me feel good. I don't know if it adds to my like understanding of my fandom, but it like, I don't know. Hmm. It definitely adds something for sure. I just don't know what that is. <laughs> That's a really interesting question though. I feel like I have to think about that some more, honestly. It's not a real clear question, but yeah, cause it's, I think uh, all of us who kind of enjoy, especially bands, I suppose any RPF, you could look at it that way, but like um, seeing, I don't know, I get yeah, trying to investigate the sort of emotional and real life narrative of, people that you're only getting a certain side of and the, the music i think the band thing in particular because at the whole thing about music and lyrics it's like it's so beautiful aesthetically and poetic mm -hmm. and so reading into that like well what did what did bono mean what is this about the edge or is this about Allie or is this what is this about like it just lets you maybe engage in those people in a way that maybe quote unquote regular fans or fans that aren't interested as much yeah. in that stuff don't do but but yeah like the rpf thing it's like when i read a fic that's like i feel like oh that doesn't sound like liam or that doesn't sound like no like it's, it's it's like it totally ruins it for me and i have to like for close sure, out yeah. the fic so it's a, it's a finer line maybe that people have to adhere to quote unquote canon you know yeah it's a higher bar maybe in rpf than traditional fan fiction it, it probably is and because you're like you're dealing with real people's lives and i feel like that's actually like not to linger too long, but like the more you're talking, the more I was thinking maybe like sometimes I do feel like a little bit like internally embarrassed by like how much I love the idea of these people that I've never met because they are real people. Like it's one thing if it's a fictional character. It's another thing where you're like, oh, that is a real person. And I'm like in a weird way pretending to know them. But then I walked it back and I said, well, no, I mean, you're knowing a part of the persona that's being presented to you and very intentionally, which is, again, something I love about you, too, is they always love their fans and they're never going to like, you know, like if you're like fangirling out in front of Botto, he's going to love it. He's never going to be like, get away from me. I'm, I'm yeah. too overwhelmed. He's going to be sweet about it. Even if he is overwhelmed, he's going to be sweet about it. And the whole band would, obviously. So maybe that's something like really encouraging to think is like, you can be a fan and you can love the idea of these people, even if it's not hundred percent who they are in their private lives. And I don't need to have this sort of like tangential embarrassment of reading fanfic. I don't know. 
Yeah. No, I think all of us who read fanfic and then when you take the step of writing it, you kind of like have to have a little talk mm-hmm. with yourself like, is this okay? And I think I've yeah. thought about it enough to where I'm like, yeah, it's okay. But initially I was kind of like, this is maybe taking my fanfiction obsession to a weird level. But then, yeah, when you think about it, um, we're like, well, this is just the way that I engage in something that I love. And as long as I'm not uh, like yeah. mailing my – Hundred thousand word incest epic <laughs> to um, Noel and Liam, and I'm mm-hmm. posting it on a fan fiction site. And it's not like I'm ever going to meet him, but if I did, like I would never bring that up. Or you know, it's like this is for me, really, right, right. And for and for the other people out there that are also fan fiction enthusiasts, like I don't know, I I feel like I can keep it pretty clear in my head, but um, it's probably easy for people to go overboard. But I don't know, I love it. I I so I've made peace with my weirdness about it. No, I love that perspective, though, because, like, I feel like that's, like, I feel like I kind of got there when I was reading this, like, this fic that we had to read, or that we had to, this fic that that we were reading for this, uh, fictitious characters, I kind of got there, I was like, you know what, I can enjoy this, and I appreciate that perspective a lot, Sarah, because, like, I feel like you've, you've definitely gotten to a good spot where you're, like, yes, I know exactly what I'm getting out of this, and it's, like, it's not unhealthy, it's not weird, and I'm also like, I'm not one of those weird obsessive fans that's trying to like climb the gate into my <laughs> yeah. star's mansion, you know? I'm just yeah. doing this thing because it makes me happy. So, yeah. yeah. If you can check yourself and be like, you know, if you do get to the point where you're like looking up addresses and trying to, you know, so far I'm, no, I'm climbing no garden gates. So I think I'm good. You're good. Yeah. All right. Well, let's kind of wrap up with our questions. And this is kind of a, Maybe a big question, maybe not, but, um, and you've talked around this the whole time, but like, what do you think makes you two special? And what, what does you two mean to you? <laughs> it's a corny way to ask that. It's, no, it's not. I mean, like, I think it's just a hard question to answer because yeah. I know I am part of a, a fandom that also feels the same way that I do. However, most of the time when I hear fans speak about you two, it's like, well, we appreciate how loving the band is and how kind they are and like their energy when they're playing live and that sort of relationship we feel we have, that connection, the kindness. And like, those are all things I appreciate about the band, but those were all things that I had no idea about when I first started listening to them. Mm. Something struck me and maybe it came through in the music. Like, I didn't know the long history of the band or like how kind they were and what activists they were until after I had already listened to them for a while. Right. Like you, you don't know when you first start and I still, something struck me about the music. And I think it's both like, I I think if I had found out that this band was like comprised of terrible people, it might've set me back just a little bit. I mean, not that I don't like still love the Beatles, even though I might have like mixed feelings about things John Lennon has done, though it honestly it does feel like John Lennon tried to get better later in his life. Anyway, yeah. All that aside, first of all, musically speaking, they've done so much just to reinvent themselves and like do new things all the time. But I still don't even think that's it. I I just think maybe there's a special like those are all contributing factors, but I think maybe they just have like a special energy that comes from like, this is going to sound so abstract and I have like no scientific way to prove this, but 
from just being so in sync with one another, they've managed to create a sound that's just, I don't know. It's like you can feel the energy of that connection that the band members mm. have with each other and what they're trying to communicate. I mean, also their lyrics are gorgeous and very positive. So I don't know. I think it's it's very hard to describe. Yeah, I don't think anyone knows the answer to why you love certain bands and why you connect with certain bands. And like, yeah. I don't feel like I really connected the band at a young age. Like, I don't know, maybe the I I did obsess over the Spice Girls for a few years with my sister, <laughs> but that one didn't really last. And I, it seems to be that the things I love, I'm mostly finding now in like my early 30s. And mm. I don't know, I feel like I haven't loved a band like I've loved Oasis, and I I can't exactly explain it, but. Um, it's been a fun journey to kind of be on. So it's cool that yeah. you, it seems somehow appropriate that like you discovered YouTube fairly early and it's been a through line for you. But yeah, who knows? Yeah. And that's like a deeper question of like, why do you connect with certain bands and artists? And like, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and here's another interesting thing that I think about is like, if you two didn't have so much like media available to me, like, Rattle and Hum had already come out as a video, you know, so you could like actually like get and DVDs were out by the time I was like in high school. So you could like get a DVD and like watch music videos of the band and also interviews and stuff like that, that like maybe you couldn't have in an earlier era. I wonder if like having just like having that, like having so much media available was one of the important elements that like created a connection that like not to say the connection wouldn't have happened but it was the facilitating thing that there was so much to explore. Yeah. And I kind of wonder how that reflects in like your journey with Oasis, because I feel like there's a lot less to explore on the journey with Oasis, like in terms of media they put out. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's, they did make uh, seven albums with Oasis. I think for me, it was like, even before I connected with the Oasis music, um, it was seeing uh, Liam's solo stuff. Like that was the mm, first of their mm. music I encountered. And I think that was the first I connected with. Like I saw he made this music video called One of Us, which is really just like a, a heart rending. He wouldn't say it is, but it's very obvious that it's about like uh, his absent relationship with his brother. Like it's so, mm. and, and, it, and the breakup of Oasis. So I think that something about that, I was like, there's a story here. And then I went back and like binged all of Oasis and I've somehow just connected with all of that music. But yeah, so in the way I guess I've recently discovered and there's Liam's doing new music, Noel's doing new music. So in that way, it's like I've there's been material there. But it is cool with you too. Like if you discovered it, you know, in the 2000s, they've been putting out mm-hmm. albums since then. So it's like there's always something yeah. new coming. I mean, there's some years where they don't do anything, but they're they've been productive all this time and so that is amazing like because it's a little different than this well i don't know enough about how long it's been since the stones have made a new album but some a lot of bands mm. that are still touring are just doing old material but you know u two's been doing new stuff yeah for quite some time so that is um it seems unique at least to me about that so that i think that's really cool yeah it is it is interesting yeah to think about yeah, the uniqueness of a band that's been together since they were teenagers, you know, yep. for over 40 years. I mean, gosh, if you think about when they first started, 1976, they weren't U2 back then. They were called Feedback. But three years from now, that'll be 
50 years since they first started playing music oh, together. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, I mean, just just incredible. And so, like, as much as I don't know why I love you too, because I knew none of this information when I first got obsessed with them, but maybe there's just something that something about it, you know, that all that all that stuff comes together to make this like ex- thing that is exciting to me. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that's like the same for you with Oasis. Like there's obviously like facets of the personalities that you're drawn to. And like, maybe even if you didn't know those facets, they somehow came through in the music or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. I don't have an art- articulate response to that. I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about music and talking about Oasis, or well, a little bit about Oasis, but talking about <laughs> you two. I see it just slips in. Talking about you two and Bono and all things about that band. So I feel like we were talking about this for a while and it was like, yes, let's, let's do it. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on here and talking band and bandfic with me. I appreciate you having me on to like just basically generically like ramble along my the lines of my obsession. Um, <laughs> I could talk forever about this and I appreciate you indulging me. So thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. And I feel like my little theme music of um, which is Oasis Supersonic, I normally play as the outro, but I've been getting away. Nobody's flagged me yet for playing clips of U2 songs. Mm. So if I, if I put a U2 clip as an outro, which song do you want me to try and use? Ooh, as an outro. Good question. You know what? I think it should be a beautiful day because, like, it's just such a positive way to end, right? I love it. We'll do that. Well, thank you again, Tori. And, uh, yeah, uh, we'll speak more soon. Excellent. Thanks again. Nice one. Woohoo! We did it! It's a beautiful.